Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 38 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter 38. Friendly Advice. Fouquet had gone to bed like a man who clings to life and wishes to economize as much as possible that slender tissue of existence of which the shocks and frictions of this world so quickly wear out the tenuity. D'Artagnan appeared at the door of this chamber and was saluted by the superintendent with a very affable, "'Good day!' "'Bonjour, monseigneur,' replied the musketeer. "'How did you get through the journey?' "'Tolerably well, thank you.' "'And the fever?' "'But poorly. I drink, as you perceive. I am scarcely arrived, and I have already levied a contribution of tisane upon nuts.' "'You should sleep first, monseigneur.' "'Eh, corbleu, my dear monsieur d'Artagnan!' I should be very glad to sleep. Who hinders you? Why, you, in the first place. I? Oh, Monseigneur! No doubt you do. Is it not as at Paris? Do you not come in the King's name? For heaven's sake, Monseigneur, replied the captain, leave the King alone. The day on which I shall come on the part of the King, for the purpose you mean, take my word for it. I will not leave you long in doubt. You will see me place my hand on my sword, according to the ordonnance, and you will hear my say at once, in ceremonial voice, Monseigneur, in the name of the King, I arrest you. You promise me that frankness? said the superintendent. Upon my honour, but we have not come to that, believe me. What makes you think that, Monsieur d'Artagnan? For my part, I think quite the contrary. I have heard speak of nothing of the kind, replied D'Artagnan. Eh, eh, said Fouquet. Indeed, no. You are an agreeable man, in spite of your fever. The king should not, cannot help loving you at the bottom of his heart. Fouquet's expression implied doubt. But, Monsieur Colbert, said he, does Monsieur Colbert love me as much as you say? I am not speaking of Monsieur Colbert, replied D'Artagnan. He is an exceptional man. He does not love you. So much is very possible. But, mordieu, the squirrel can guard himself against the adder with very little trouble. Do you know that you are speaking to me quite as a friend? replied Fouquet and that, upon my life, I have never met with a man of your intelligence and heart? "'You are pleased to say so,' replied D'Artagnan. "'Why did you wait till to-day to pay me such a compliment?' "'Blind that we are,' murmured Fouquet. 
"'Your voice is getting hoarse,' said D'Artagnan. "'Drink, Monseigneur, drink!' And he offered him a cup of Tissane, with the most friendly cordiality. Fouquet took it, and thanked him by a gentle smile. "'Such things only happen to me,' said the musketeer. "'I have passed ten years under your very beard, while you were rolling about tons of gold. You were clearing an annual pension of four millions. You never observe me, and you find out there is such a person in the world just at the moment you—just at the moment I am about to fall,' interrupted Fouquet. "'That is true, my dear Monsieur d'Artagnan.' I did not say so. But you thought so, and that is the same thing. Well, if I fall, take my word as truth. I shall not pass a single day without saying to myself, as I strike my brow, Fool, fool, stupid mortal! You had a Monsieur d'Artagnan under your eye and hand, and you did not employ him, you did not enrich him. You overwhelm me, said the captain. I esteem you greatly. There exists another man, then, who does not think as M. Colbert thinks, said the surintendant. How this M. Colbert looms up in your imagination! He is worse than fever. Oh, I have good cause, said Fouquet. Judge for yourself. And he related the details of the course of the lighters, and the hypocritical persecution of Colbert. Is not this a clear sign of my ruin? D'Artagnan became very serious. That is true, he said. Yes, it has an unsavory odor, as Monsieur de Treville used to say. And he fixed on Monsieur Fouquet his intelligent and significant look. Am I not clearly designated in that, Captain? Is not the king bringing me to Nantes to get me away from Paris? where I have so many creatures, and to possess himself of Belle-Isle. "'Where Monsieur d'Herblay is,' added D'Artagnan. Fouquet raised his head. "'As for me, Monseigneur,' continued D'Artagnan, "'I can assure you the King has said nothing to me against you.' "'Indeed?' "'The King commanded me to set out for Nantes, it is true, and to say nothing about it to Monsieur de Gevres.' "'My friend!' "'To Monsieur de Gèvres, yes, Monseigneur,' continued the musketeer, whose eyes did not cease to speak a language different from the language of his lips. "'The king, moreover, commanded me to take a brigade of musketeers, which is apparently superfluous, as the country is quite quiet.' "'A brigade!' said Fouquet, raising himself upon his elbow. Ninety-six horsemen, yes, Monseigneur.' the same number as were employed in arresting Messieurs de Chalet, de Saint-Marc, and Montmorency. Fouquet pricked up his ears at these words, pronounced without apparent value. "'And what else?' said he. "'Oh, nothing but insignificant orders, such as guarding the castle, guarding every lodging, allowing none of Monsieur de Gèvres' guards to occupy a single post. "'And as to myself,' cried Fouquet. What orders had you? As to you, Monseigneur, not the smallest word. Monsieur d'Artagnan, my safety, my honour, perhaps my life are at stake. You would not deceive me. I? To what end? 
are you threatened? Only there really is an order with respect to carriages and boats. An order? Yes, but it cannot concern you. A simple measure of police. What is it, Captain? What is it? To forbid all horses or boats to leave not without a pass signed by the king. Great God, but— D'Artagnan began to laugh. All that is not to be put into execution before the arrival of the king at Nantes. So that you see plainly, Monseigneur, the order in no wise concerns you. Fouquet became thoughtful, and D'Artagnan feigned not to observe his preoccupation. It is evident, by my thus confiding to you the orders which have been given to me, that I am friendly towards you, and that I am trying to prove to you that none of them are directed against you. "'Without doubt, without doubt,' said Fouquet, still absent. "'Let us recapitulate,' said the captain, his glance beaming with earnestness. "'A special guard about the castle, in which your lodging is to be, is it not?' "'Do you know the castle?' "'Ah, Monseigneur, a regular prison. The absence of Monsieur de Gevre, which has the honour of being one of your friends. The closing of the gates of the city, and of the river without a pass. But only when the king shall have arrived. Please to observe, Monsieur Fouquet, that if, instead of speaking to a man like you, who are one of the first in the kingdom, I were speaking to a troubled, uneasy conscience, I should compromise myself forever. What a fine opportunity for any one who wished to be free! No police, no guards, no orders. The water free, the roads free. Monsieur d'Artagnan obliged to lend his horses, if required. All this ought to reassure you, Monsieur Fouquet, for the king would not have left me thus independent if he had any sinister designs. In truth, Monsieur Fouquet, ask me whatever you like. I am at your service." and, in return, if you will consent to do it, do me a service, that of giving my compliments to Aramis and Porthos, in case you embark for Belle-Isle, as you have a right to do without changing your dress, immediately, in your robe de chambre, just as you are. Saying these words, and with a profound bow, the musketeer, whose looks had lost none of their intelligent kindness, left the apartment. He had not reached the steps of the vestibule, when Fouquet, quite beside himself, hung to the bell-rope, and shouted, "'My horses! My lighter!' But nobody answered. The surintendant dressed himself with everything that came to hand. "'Gourville! Gourville!' cried he, while slipping his watch into his pocket. And the bell sounded again, whilst Fouquet repeated, "'Gourville! Gourville!' Gourville at length appeared, breathless and pale. "'Let us be gone! Let us be gone!' cried Fouquet, as soon as he saw him. "'It is too late,' said the surintendant's poor friend. "'Too late? Why?' "'Listen!' And they heard the sounds of trumpets and drums in front of the castle. "'What does that mean, Gourville?' "'It means the king has come, Monseigneur.' "'The king!' The king, who has ridden double stages, who has killed horses, and who is eight hours in advance of all our calculations. 
"'We are lost,' murmured Fouquet. "'Brave D'Artagnan, all is over. Thou hast spoken to me too late.' The king, in fact, was entering the city, which soon resounded with the cannon from the ramparts, and from a vessel which replied from the lower parts of the river. Fouquet's brow darkened. He called his valet de chambre and dressed in ceremonial costume. From his window, behind the curtains, he could see the eagerness of the people, and the movement of a large troop, which had followed the prince. The king was conducted to the castle with great pomp, and Fouquet saw him dismount under the portcullis, and say something in the ear of D'Artagnan, who held his stirrup. D'Artagnan, when the king had passed under the arch, directed his steps towards the house Fouquet was in, but so slowly, and stopping so frequently to speak to his musketeers, drawn up like a hedge, that it might be said he was counting the seconds, or the steps, before accomplishing his object. Fouquet opened the window to speak to him in the court. "'Ah!' cried D'Artagnan, on perceiving him. "'Are you still there, Monseigneur?' And that word, still, completed the proof to Fouquet of how much information and how many useful counsels were contained in the first visit the musketeer had paid him. The surintendant sighed deeply. "'Good heavens! Yes, monsieur,' replied he. "'The arrival of the king has interrupted me in the projects I had formed.' "'Oh, then you know that the king has arrived.' "'Yes, monsieur. I have seen him, and this time you come from him.' "'To inquire after you, monseigneur, and, if your health is not too bad, to beg you to have the kindness to repair to the castle.' "'Directly, Monsieur d'Artagnan, directly.' "'Ah, Mordieu,' said the captain, "'now the king has come, there is no more walking for anybody. No more free will. The password governs all now, you as much as me, me as much as you.' Fouquet heaved a last sigh, climbed with difficulty into his carriage, so great was his weakness, and went to the castle, escorted by d'Artagnan whose politeness was not less terrifying this time than it had just before been consoling and cheerful. End of chapter Chapter 39 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. THE MAN IN THE IRON MASK by Alexandre Dumas CHAPTER Thirty Nine: HOW THE KING, LOUIS the Fourteenth PLAYED HIS LITTLE PART As Fouquet was alighting from his carriage, to enter the castle of Nantes, a man of mean appearance went up to him with marks of the greatest respect, and gave him a letter. D'Artagnan endeavoured to prevent this man from speaking to Fouquet, and pushed him away but the message had been given to the surintendant. Fouquet opened the letter and read it, and instantly, a vague terror, which D'Artagnan did not fail to penetrate, was painted on the countenance of the First Minister. Fouquet put the paper into the portfolio, which he had under his arm, and passed on towards the King's apartments. D'Artagnan, through the small windows made at every landing of the donjon stairs, saw, as he went up behind Fouquet, 
the man who had delivered the note, looking round him on the place and making signs to several persons, who disappeared in the adjacent streets, after having themselves repeated the signals. Fouquet was made to wait for a moment on the terrace of which we have spoken, a terrace which abutted on the little corridor, at the end of which the cabinet of the king was located. Here D'Artagnan passed on before the surintendant, whom till that time he had respectfully accompanied, and entered the royal cabinet. "'Well?' asked Louis the Fourteenth, who, on perceiving him, threw on to the table covered with papers a large green cloth. "'The order is executed, sire.' "'And Fouquet?' "'Monsieur le surintendant follows me,' said D'Artagnan. "'In ten minutes let him be introduced,' said the king, dismissing D'Artagnan again with a gesture. The latter retired, but had scarcely reached the corridor at the extremity of which Fouquet was waiting for him, when he was recalled by the king's bell. "'Did he not appear astonished?' asked the king. "'Who, sire?' "'Fouquet!' replied the king, without saying a monsieur, a peculiarity which confirmed the captain of the musketeers in his suspicions. "'No, sire,' replied he. "'That's well.' And a second time Louis dismissed D'Artagnan. Fouquet had not quitted the terrace where he had been left by his guide. He re-perused his note, conceived thus. "'Something is being contrived against you. Perhaps they will not dare to carry it out at the castle.' It will be on your return home. The house is already surrounded by musketeers. Do not enter. A white horse is in waiting for you behind the esplanade. Fouquet recognized the writing and zeal of Gourville. Not being willing that, if any evil happened to himself, this paper should compromise a faithful friend, the surintendant was busy tearing it into a thousand morsels, spread about by the wind from the balustrade of the terrace. D'Artagnan found him watching the snowflake fluttering of the last scraps in space. "'Monsieur,' said he, "'the king awaits you.' Fouquet walked with a deliberate step along the little corridor, where Messieurs de Brienne and Rose were at work, whilst the Duc de Saint-Aignan, seated on a chair, likewise in the corridor, appeared to be waiting for orders, with feverish impatience, his sword between his legs. It appeared strange to Fouquet that Monsieur Brienne, Rose, and de Saint-Aignan, in general so attentive and obsequious, should scarcely take the least notice, as he, the surintendant, passed. But how could he expect to find it otherwise among courtiers, he whom the king no longer called anything but Fouquet? He raised his head, determined to look every one and everything bravely in the face, and entered the king's apartment where a little bell, which we already know, had already announced him to his majesty. The king, without rising, nodded to him, and with interest, "'Well, how are you, Monsieur Fouquet?' said he. "'I am in a high fever,' replied the surintendant. "'But I am at the king's service.' "'That is well. The states assemble to-morrow. Have you a speech ready?' Fouquet looked at the king with astonishment. "'I have not, sire,' replied he, "'but I will improvise one. I am too well acquainted with affairs to feel any embarrassment. I have only one question to ask. Will your majesty permit me?' "'Certainly. Ask it.' 
why did not your majesty do his first minister the honor of giving him notice of this in paris you were ill i was not willing to fatigue you never did a labor never did an explanation fatigue me sire and since the moment has come for me to demand an explanation of my king oh monsieur fouquet an explanation an explanation pray of what of your majesty's intentions with respect to myself the king blushed i have been calumniated continued fouquet warmly and i feel called upon to adjure the justice of the king to make inquiries you say all this to me very uselessly monsieur fouquet i know what i know your majesty can only know the things that have been told to you and i on my part have said nothing to you whilst others have spoken many many times what do you wish to say said the king impatient to put an end to this embarrassing conversation i will go straight to the facts sire and i accuse a certain man of having injured me in your majesty's opinion nobody has injured you monsieur fouquet that reply proves to me sire that i am right monsieur fouquet i do not like people to be accused not when one is accused we have already spoken too much about this affair your majesty will not allow me to justify myself i repeat that i do not accuse you fouquet with a half bow made a step backward it is certain thought he that he has made up his mind he alone who cannot go back can show such obstinacy not to see the danger now would be to be blind indeed not to shun it would be stupid he resumed aloud did your majesty send for me on business no monsieur fouquet but for some advice i wish to give you i respectfully await it sire rest yourself monsieur fouquet do not throw away your strength the session of the states will be short and when my secretaries shall have closed it i do not wish business to be talked of in france for a fortnight has the king nothing to say to me on the subject of this assembly of the states no monsieur fouquet not to me the surintendant of the finances rest yourself i beg you that is all i have to say to you fouquet bit his lips and hung his head he was evidently busy with some uneasy thought this uneasiness struck the king are you angry at having to rest yourself monsieur fouquet said he yes sire i am not accustomed to take rest but you are ill you must take care of yourself your majesty spoke just now of a speech to be pronounced to-morrow his majesty made no reply this unexpected stroke embarrassed him fouquet felt the weight of this hesitation he thought he could read danger in the eyes of the young prince which fear would but precipitate if i appear frightened i am lost thought he the king on his part was only uneasy at the alarm of fouquet has he a suspicion of anything murmured he if his first word is severe again thought fouquet if he becomes angry or feigns to be angry for the sake of a pretext how shall i extricate myself 
Let us smooth the declivity a little. Gourville was right. Sire, said he, suddenly, since the goodness of the king watches over my health to the point of dispensing with my labour, may I not be allowed to be absent from the council of to-morrow? I could pass the day in bed, and will entreat the king to grant me his physician, that we may endeavour to find a remedy against this fearful fever. So be it, Monsieur Fouquet. It shall be as you desire. You shall have a holiday to-morrow. You shall have the physician, and shall be restored to health. Thanks, said Fouquet, bowing. Then opening his game, Shall I not have the happiness of conducting your majesty to my residence of Belle-Isle? And he looked Louis full in the face, to judge of the effect of such a proposal. The king blushed again. Do you know, replied he, endeavouring to smile, that you have just said, my residence of Belle-Isle? Yes, sire. Well, do you not remember, continued the king in the same cheerful tone, that you gave me Belle-Isle? That is true again, sire. Only, as you have not taken it, you will doubtless come with me and take possession of it. I mean to do so. That was, besides, your majesty's intention as well as mine, and I cannot express to your majesty how happy and proud I have been to see all the king's regiments from Paris to help take possession. The king stammered out that he did not bring the musketeers for that alone. "'Oh, I am convinced of that,' said Fouquet, warmly. "'Your majesty knows very well that you have nothing to do but to come alone with a cane in your hand.' to bring to the ground all the fortifications of Belle-Isle. "'Pest!' cried the king. "'I do not wish those fine fortifications, which cost so much to build, to fall at all. No, let them stand against the Dutch and English. You would not guess what I want to see at Belle-Isle, Monsieur Fouquet. It is the pretty peasants and women of the lands on the seashore, who dance so well, and are so seducing with their scarlet petticoats.' I have heard great boast of your pretty tenants, Monsieur le Surintendant. Well, let me have a sight of them. Whenever your majesty pleases. Have you any means of transport? It shall be to-morrow, if you like. The Surintendant felt this stroke, which was not adroit, and replied, No, sire, I was ignorant of your majesty's wish. Above all, I was ignorant of your haste to see Belle-Isle, and I am prepared with nothing. You have a boat of your own, nevertheless. I have five, but they are all in port, or at Pembeuf, and to join them, or bring them hither, will require at least twenty-four hours. Have I any occasion to send a courier? Must I do so? Wait a little. Put an end to the fever. Wait till to-morrow. That is true. Who knows but by the to-morrow we may not have a hundred other ideas." replied Fouquet, now perfectly convinced and very pale. The king started and stretched his hand out towards his little bell, but Fouquet prevented his ringing. "'Sire,' said he, "'I have an ague. I am trembling with cold. If I remain a moment longer, I shall most likely faint. I request your majesty's permission to go and fling myself beneath the bedclothes.' "'Indeed, you are in a shiver.' It is painful to behold. 
Come, Monsieur Fouquet, be gone. I will send to inquire after you. Your Majesty overwhelms me with kindness. In an hour I shall be better. I will call someone to reconduct you, said the king. As you please, sire, I would gladly take the arm of any one. Monsieur d'Artagnan, cried the king, ringing his little bell. Oh, sire, interrupted Fouquet, laughing in such a manner as made the prince feel cold. Would you give me the captain of your musketeers to take me to my lodgings? An equivocal honour that, sire. A simple footman, I beg. And why, Monsieur Fouquet? Monsieur d'Artagnan conducts me often, and extremely well. Yes, but when he conducts you, sire, it is to obey you, whilst me— Go on. If I am obliged to return home supported by the leader of the musketeers, it would be everywhere said you had had me arrested. Arrested, replied the king, who became paler than Fouquet himself. Arrested. Oh! And why should they not say so? continued Fouquet, still laughing. And I would lay a wager there would be people found wicked enough to laugh at it. This sally disconcerted the monarch. Fouquet was skilful enough, or fortunate enough, to make Louis the Fourteenth recoil before the appearance of the deed he meditated. Monsieur d'Artagnan, when he approached, received an order to desire a musketeer to accompany the surintendant. "'Quite unnecessary,' said the latter. "'Sword for sword, I prefer Gourville, who is waiting for me below.' but that will not prevent me enjoying the society of Monsieur d'Artagnan. I am glad he will see Belle-Isle. He is so good a judge of fortifications. D'Artagnan bowed, without at all comprehending what was going on. Fouquet bowed again, and left the apartment, affecting all the slowness of a man who walks with difficulty. When once out of the castle, "'I am saved,' said he. "'Oh, yes, disloyal king!' You shall see Belle-Isle, but it shall be when I am no longer there. He disappeared, leaving D'Artagnan with the king. Captain, said the king, you will follow Monsieur Fouquet at the distance of a hundred paces. Yes, sire. He is going to his lodgings again. You will go with him. Yes, sire. You will arrest him in my name, and will shut him up in a carriage. In a carriage. Well, sire? In such a fashion that he may not, on the road, either converse with any one, or throw notes to people he may meet. That will be rather difficult, sire. Not at all. Pardon me, sire, I cannot stifle Monsieur Fouquet, and if he asks for liberty to breathe I cannot prevent him by closing both the windows and the blinds, he will throw out at the doors all the cries and notes possible. The case is provided for, Monsieur d'Artagnan. A carriage with a trellis will obviate both the difficulties you point out. A carriage with an iron trellis, cried d'Artagnan. But a carriage with an iron trellis is not made in half an hour, and your majesty commands me to go immediately to Monsieur Fouquet's lodgings. The carriage in question is already made. "'Ah! That is quite a different thing,' said the captain. "'If the carriage is ready-made, 
Very well, then, we have only to set it in motion. It is ready, and the horses harnessed. Ah! And the coachman, with the outriders, is waiting in the lower court of the castle. D'Artagnan bowed. There only remains for me to ask your majesty whither I shall conduct Monsieur Fouquet. To the castle of Angers, at first. Very well, sire. Afterwards we will see. Yes, sire. Monsieur d'Artagnan, one last word. You have remarked that, for making this capture of Monsieur Fouquet, I have not employed my guards, on which account Monsieur de Gevres will be furious. Your Majesty does not employ your guards, said the captain, a little humiliated, because you mistrust Monsieur de Gevres. That is all. That is to say, monsieur, that I have more confidence in you. I know that very well, sire, and it is of no use to make so much of it. It is only for the sake of arriving at this, monsieur, that if, from this moment, it should happen that by any chance whatever, monsieur Fouquet should escape, such chances have been, monsieur. Oh, very often, sire, but for others, not for me. And why not with you? Because I, sire, have, for an instant, wished to save Monsieur Fouquet. The king started. Because, continued the captain, I had then a right to do so, having guessed your majesty's plan, without you having spoken to me of it, and that I took an interest in Monsieur Fouquet. Now, was I not at liberty to show my interest in this man? In truth, monsieur, you do not reassure me with regard to your services. If I had saved him, then, I should have been perfectly innocent. I will say more. I should have done well, for M. Fouquet is not a bad man. But he was not willing. His destiny prevailed. He let the hour of liberty slip by. So much the worse. Now I have orders. I will obey those orders. And M. Fouquet you may consider as a man arrested." He is at the castle of Angers, this very Monsieur Fouquet. Oh, you have not got him yet, Captain. That concerns me. Every one to his trade, sire. Only, once more, reflect. Do you seriously give me orders to arrest Monsieur Fouquet, sire? Yes, a thousand times, yes. In writing, sire, then. Here is the order. D'Artagnan read it, bowed to the king, and left the room. From the height of the terrace he perceived Gourville, who went by with a joyous air towards the lodgings of Monsieur Fouquet. End of chapter Chapter 40 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 40 The White Horse and the Black That is rather surprising, said D'Artagnan. Gourville running about the street so gaily when he is almost certain that Monsieur Fouquet is in danger— when it is almost equally certain that it was Gourville who warned M. Fouquet just now by the note which was torn into a thousand pieces upon the terrace, and given to the winds by M. le surintendant, 
Gourville is rubbing his hands. That is because he has done something clever. Whence comes Monsieur Gourville? Gourville is coming from the Rue aux Herbes. Whither does the Rue aux Herbes lead? And D'Artagnan followed, along the tops of the houses of Nantes, dominated by the castle, the line traced by the streets, as he would have done upon a topographical plan. Only, instead of the dead, flat paper, the living chart rose in relief with the cries, the movements, and the shadows of men and things. Beyond the enclosure of the city, the great verdant plains stretched out, bordering the Loire, and appeared to run towards the pink horizon, which was cut by the azure of the waters and the dark green of the marshes. Immediately outside the gates of Nantes, two white roads were seen diverging like separate fingers of a gigantic hand. D'Artagnan, who had taken in all the panorama at a glance by crossing the terrace, was led by the line of the Rue aux Herbes to the mouth of one of those roads, which took its rise under the gates of Nantes. One step more, and he was about to descend the stairs, take his trellised carriage, and go towards the lodgings of Monsieur Fouquet. But chance decreed, at the moment of plunging into the staircase, that he was attracted by a moving point, then gaining ground upon that road. "'What is that?' said the musketeer to himself. "'A horse galloping. A runaway horse, no doubt. What a rate he is going at!' The moving point became detached from the road and entered into the fields. "'A white horse,' continued the captain, who had just observed the colour thrown luminously against the dark ground. "'And he is mounted.' It must be some boy whose horse is thirsty and has run away with him. These reflections, rapid as lightning, simultaneous with visual perception, D'Artagnan had already forgotten when he descended the first steps of the staircase. Some morsels of paper were spread over the stairs, and shone out white against the dirty stones. "'Eh! Eh!' said the captain to himself. "'Here are some of the fragments of the note torn by Monsieur Fouquet.' "'Poor man!' He has given his secret to the wind. The wind will have no more to do with it, and brings it back to the king. Decidedly, Fouquet, you play with misfortune. The game is not a fair one. Fortune is against you. The star of Louis the Fourteenth obscures yours. The adder is stronger and more cunning than the squirrel. D'Artagnan picked up one of the morsels of paper as he descended. Gourville's pretty little hand cried he, whilst examining one of the fragments of the note, I was not mistaken. And he read the word, horse. Stop, said he, and he examined another, upon which there was not a letter traced. Upon a third he read the word, white. White horse, repeated he, like a child that is spelling. Ah, mordieu, cried the suspicious spirit, a white horse and, like that grain of powder which, burning, dilates into ten thousand times its volume, D'Artagnan, enlightened by ideas and suspicions, rapidly reascended the stairs towards the terrace. The white horse was still galloping in the direction of the Loire, at the extremity of which, melting into the vapours of the water, a little sail appeared, wave-balanced like a water butterfly. "'Oh!' cried the musketeer. Only a man who wants to fly would go at that pace across ploughed lands. There is but one Fouquet, a financier, 
to ride thus in open day upon a white horse, there is no one but the lord of Belle-Isle who would make his escape towards the sea, while there are such thick forests on land, and there is but one d'Artagnan in the world to catch Monsieur Fouquet, who has half an hour's start, and will have gained his boat within an hour. This being said, the musketeer gave orders that the carriage with the iron trellis should be taken immediately to a thicket situated just outside the city. He selected his best horse, jumped upon his back, galloped along the Rue aux Herbes, taking not the road Fouquet had taken, but the bank itself of the Loire, certain that he should gain ten minutes upon the total distance, and, at the intersection of the two lines, come up with the fugitive, who could have no suspicion of being pursued in that direction. In the rapidity of the pursuit, and with the impatience of the avenger, animating himself as in war, D'Artagnan, so mild, so kind towards Fouquet, was surprised to find himself become ferocious, almost sanguinary. For a long time he galloped without catching sight of the white horse. His rage assumed fury. He doubted himself. He suspected that Fouquet had buried himself in some subterranean road, or that he had changed the white horse for one of the famous black ones, as swift as the wind, which D'Artagnan, at Saint-Mande, had so frequently admired and envied for their vigour and their fleetness. At such moments, when the wind cut his eyes so as to make the tears spring from them, when the saddle had become burning hot, when the galled and spurred horse reared with pain, and threw behind him a shower of dust and stones, D'Artagnan, raising himself in his stirrups, and seeing nothing on the waters, nothing beneath the trees, looked up into the air like a madman, he was losing his senses. In the paroxysms of eagerness he dreamt of aerial ways, the discovery of the following century. He called to his mind Daedalus and the vast wings that had saved him from the prisons of Crete. A hoarse sigh broke from his lips, as he repeated, devoured by the fear of ridicule, I, I, duped by a Gourville, I, they will say that I am growing old, they will say I have received a million to allow Fouquet to escape. And he again dug his spurs into the sides of his horse. He had ridden astonishingly fast. Suddenly, at the extremity of some open pasture-ground, behind the hedges, he saw a white form which showed itself, disappeared, and at last remained distinctly visible against the rising ground. D'Artagnan's heart leaped with joy. He wiped the streaming sweat from his brow, relaxed the tension of his knees, by which the horse breathed more freely, and, gathering up his reins, moderated the speed of the vigorous animal, his active accomplice on this man-hunt. He had then time to study the direction of the road, and his position with regard to Fouquet. The superintendent had completely winded his horse by crossing the soft ground. He felt the necessity of gaining a firmer footing, and turned towards the road by the shortest secant line, D'Artagnan, on his part, had nothing to do but to ride straight on, concealed by the sloping shore, so that he would cut his quarry off the road when he came up with him. Then the real race would begin. Then the struggle would be in earnest. D'Artagnan gave his horse good breathing time. He observed that the superintendent had relaxed into a trot, which was to say he too was favouring his horse but both of them were too much pressed for time to allow them to continue long at that pace. The white horse sprang off like an arrow the moment his feet touched firm ground. 
D'Artagnan dropped his head, and his black horse broke into a gallop. Both followed the same route. The quadruple echoes of this new race-course were confounded. Fouquet had not yet perceived D'Artagnan. But on issuing from the slope, a single echo struck the air. It was that of the steps D'Artagnan's horse, which rolled along like thunder. Fouquet turned round and saw behind him, within a hundred paces, his enemy bent over the neck of his horse. There could be no doubt. The shining baldric, the red cassock, it was a musketeer. Fouquet slackened his hand likewise, and the white horse placed twenty feet more between his adversary and himself. "'Oh, but,' thought D'Artagnan, becoming very anxious, "'that is not a common horse Monsieur Fouquet is upon. Let us see.' and he attentively examined with his infallible eye the shape and capabilities of the courser. Round full quarters, a thin long tail, large hocks, thin legs, as dry as bars of steel, hoofs hard as marble. He spurred his own, but the distance between the two remained the same. D'Artagnan listened attentively. Not a breath of the horse reached him, and yet he seemed to cut the air. The black horse, on the contrary, began to puff like any blacksmith's bellows. "'I must overtake him if I kill my horse,' thought the musketeer, and he began to saw the mouth of the poor animal, whilst he buried the rowels of his merciless spurs into his sides. The maddened horse gained twenty paces, and came up within pistol-shot of Fouquet. "'Courage!' said the musketeer to himself. "'Courage! The white horse will perhaps grow weaker.' and if the horse does not fall, the master must pull up at last. But horse and rider remained upright together, gaining ground by difficult degrees. D'Artagnan uttered a wild cry, which made Fouquet turn round, and added speed to the white horse. "'A famous horse! A mad rider!' growled the captain. "'Hola! Mordio! Monsieur Fouquet! Stop in the king's name!' Fouquet made no reply. "'Do you hear me?' shouted D'Artagnan, whose horse had just stumbled. "'Pardieu!' replied Fouquet, laconically, and rode on faster. D'Artagnan was nearly mad. The blood rushed boiling to his temples and his eyes. "'In the king's name!' cried he again. "'Stop, or I will bring you down with a pistol-shot!' "'Do!' replied Fouquet, without relaxing his speed. D'Artagnan seized a pistol and cocked it, hoping that the double click of the spring would stop his enemy. "'You have pistols likewise,' said he. "'Turn and defend yourself!' Fouquet did turn round at the noise, and, looking D'Artagnan full in the face, opened, with his right hand, the part of his dress which concealed his body, but he did not even touch his holsters. There were not more than twenty paces between the two. "'Mordio!' said D'Artagnan. I will not assassinate you. If you will not fire upon me, surrender. What is a prison? I would rather die, replied Fouquet. I shall suffer less. D'Artagnan, drunk with despair, hurled his pistol to the ground. I will take you alive, said he, and by a prodigy of skill which this incomparable horseman alone was capable, he threw his horse forward to within ten paces of the white horse. Already his hand was stretched out to seize his prey. "'Kill me! Kill me!' cried Fouquet. "'Twould be more humane!' "'No! Alive! 
"'Alive!' murmured the captain. At this moment his horse made a false step for the second time, and Fouquet's again took the lead. It was an unheard-of spectacle, this race between two horses which now only kept alive by the will of their riders. It might be said that D'Artagnan rode, carrying his horse along between his knees. To the furious gallop had succeeded the fast trot, and that had sunk to what might be scarcely called a trot at all. But the chase appeared equally warm in the two fatigued athletes. D'Artagnan, quite in despair, seized his second pistol and cocked it. "'At your horse, not at you!' cried he to Fouquet. And he fired. The animal was hit in the quarters. He made a furious bound and plunged forward. At that moment D'Artagnan's horse fell dead. "'I am dishonoured,' thought the musketeer. "'I am a miserable wretch. For pity's sake, Monsieur Fouquet, throw me one of your pistols that I may blow out my brains.' But Fouquet rode away. "'For mercy's sake! For mercy's sake!' cried D'Artagnan. "'That which you will not do at this moment I myself will do within an hour. But here upon this road I should die bravely. I should die esteemed. Do me that service, Monsieur Fouquet!' Monsieur Fouquet made no reply, but continued to trot on. D'Artagnan began to run after his enemy. Successively he threw away his hat, his coat, which embarrassed him, and then the sheath of his sword, which got between his legs as he was running. The sword in his hand itself became too heavy, and he threw it after the sheath. The white horse began to rattle in its throat. D'Artagnan gained upon him. From a trot the exhausted animal sunk to a staggering walk. The foam from his mouth was mixed with blood. D'Artagnan made a desperate effort, sprang towards Fouquet, and seized him by the leg, saying in a broken, breathless voice, "'I arrest you in the king's name. Blow my brains out if you like. We have both done our duty.' Fouquet hurled far from him, into the river, the two pistols D'Artagnan might have seized, and, dismounting from his horse, "'I am your prisoner, monsieur,' said he. "'Will you take my arm, for I see you are ready to faint?' "'Thanks,' murmured D'Artagnan who in fact felt the earth sliding from under his feet, and the light of day turning to blackness around him. Then he rolled upon the sand, without breath or strength. Fouquet hastened to the brink of the river, dipped some water in his hat, with which he bathed the temples of the musketeer, and introduced a few drops between his lips. D'Artagnan raised himself with difficulty, and looked about him with a wandering eye. He beheld Fouquet on his knees, with his wet hat in his hand, smiling upon him with ineffable sweetness. "'You are not off, then?' cried he. "'Oh, monsieur! The true king of royalty, in heart, in soul, is not Louis of the Louvre, or Philippe of Sainte Marguerite. It is you, proscribed, condemned.' "'I, who this day am ruined by a single error, monsieur d'Artagnan,' "'What in the name of heaven is that? "'I should have had you for a friend. "'But how shall we return to Nantes? "'We are a great way from it.' "'That is true,' said D'Artagnan, gloomily. "'The white horse will recover, perhaps. "'He is a good horse. "'Mount, Monsieur D'Artagnan. "'I will walk till you have rested a little.' "'Poor beast! "'And wounded, too,' said the musketeer. He will go, I tell you, 
I know him. But we can do better still. Let us both get up and ride slowly. We can try, said the captain. But they had scarcely charged the animal with this double load when he began to stagger, and then with a great effort walked a few minutes, then staggered again, and sank down dead by the side of the black horse, which he had just managed to come up to. We will go on foot. Destiny wills it so. The walk will be pleasant, said Fouquet, passing his arm through that of D'Artagnan. Mordieu! cried the latter, with a fixed eye, a contracted brow, and a swelling heart. What a disgraceful day! They walked slowly the four leagues which separated them from the little wood behind which the carriage and escort were in waiting. When Fouquet perceived that sinister machine, he said to D'Artagnan, who cast down his eyes, ashamed of Louis the Fourteenth, "'There is an idea that did not emanate from a brave man, Captain D'Artagnan. It is not yours. What are these gratings for?' said he. "'To prevent your throwing letters out.' "'Ingenious!' "'But you can speak if you cannot write,' said D'Artagnan. "'Can I speak to you?' "'Why, certainly, if you wish to do so.' Fouquet reflected for a moment, then looking the captain full in the face. "'One single word,' said he. "'Will you remember it?' "'I will not forget it.' "'Will you speak it to whom I wish?' "'I will.' saint articulated Fouquet in a low voice. "'Well, and for whom?' for Madame de Belliere or Pelisson. It shall be done. The carriage rolled through Nott and took the route to Angers. End of chapter Chapter 41 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 41 In Which the Squirrel Falls, the Adder Flies It was two o'clock in the afternoon. The king, full of impatience, went to his cabinet on the terrace, and kept opening the door of the corridor, to see what his secretaries were doing. Monsieur Colbert, seated in the same place Monsieur de Saint-Aignan had so long occupied in the morning, was chatting in a low voice with Monsieur de Brienne. The king opened the door suddenly and addressed them. "'What is it you are saying?' "'We were speaking of the first sitting of the States,' said Monsieur de Brienne, rising. "'Very well,' replied the king, and returned to his room." Five minutes after, the summons of the bell recalled Rose, whose hour it was. "'Have you finished your copies?' asked the king. "'Not yet, sire.' "'See if Monsieur d'Artagnan has returned.' "'Not yet, sire.' "'It is very strange,' murmured the king. "'Call Monsieur Colbert.' Colbert entered. He had been expecting this all the morning. "'Monsieur Colbert.' said the king, very sharply. "'You must ascertain what has become of Monsieur d'Artagnan.' Colbert, in his calm voice, replied, 
"'Where does your majesty desire him to be sought for?' "'Eh, monsieur, do you not know on what I have said him?' replied Louis acrimoniously. "'Your majesty did not inform me.' "'Monsieur, there are things that must be guessed, and you, above all, are apt to guess them.' I might have been able to imagine, sire, but I do not presume to be positive. Colbert had not finished these words when a rougher voice than that of the king interrupted the interesting conversation thus begun between the monarch and his clerk. D'Artagnan! cried the king with evident joy. D'Artagnan, pale and in evidently bad humor, cried to the king as he entered, Sire! Is it your majesty who has given orders to my musketeers? What orders? said the king. About Monsieur Fouquet's house? None, replied Louis. Ha! said D'Artagnan, biting his moustache. I was not mistaken then. It was Monsieur here. And he pointed to Colbert. What orders? Let me know, said the king. Orders to turn the house topsy-turvy to beat Monsieur Fouquet's servants, to force the drawers, to give over a peaceful house to pillage. Mordio, these are savage orders. Monsieur, said Colbert, turning pale. Monsieur, interrupted D'Artagnan, the king alone, understand, the king alone has a right to command my musketeers. But as to you, I forbid you to do it and I tell you so before his majesty. Gentlemen who carry swords do not sling pens behind their ears. D'Artagnan, D'Artagnan, murmured the king. It is humiliating, continued the musketeer. My soldiers are disgraced. I do not command retre, thank you, nor clerks of the intendant, mordio. Well, but what is this all about? said the king with authority. "'About this, sire, monsieur, monsieur, who could not guess your majesty's orders, and consequently could not know I was gone to arrest monsieur Fouquet, monsieur, who has caused the iron cage to be constructed for his patron of yesterday, has sent monsieur de Rancherol to the lodgings of monsieur Fouquet, and, under the pretense of securing the surintendant's papers, they have taken away the furniture.' My musketeers have been posted round the house all the morning. Such were my orders. Why did any one presume to order them to enter? Why, by forcing them to assist in this pillage, have they been made accomplices in it? Mordio! We serve the king, we do, but we do not serve Monsieur Colbert. Footnote. Dumas here, and later in the chapter, uses the name Rancherat. Rancherol is the actual name of the man. End of footnote. Monsieur d'Artagnan, said the king sternly, take care. It is not in my presence that such explanations, and made in such a tone, should take place. I have acted for the good of the king, said Colbert in a faltering voice. It is hard to be so treated by one of your majesty's officers, and that without redress, on account of the respect I owe the king. "'The respect you owe the king!' cried D'Artagnan, his eyes flashing fire. 
consists in the first place in making his authority respected and his person beloved. Every agent of a power without control represents that power, and when people curse the hand which strikes them, it is the royal hand that God reproaches. Do you hear? Must a soldier, hardened by forty years of wounds and blood, give you this lesson, monsieur? Must mercy be on my side, and ferocity on yours? You have caused the innocent to be arrested, bound, and imprisoned. Accomplices, perhaps, of Monsieur Fouquet, said Colbert. Who told you Monsieur Fouquet had accomplices, or even that he was guilty? The king alone knows that. His justice is not blind. When he says, arrest and imprison such and such a man, he is obeyed. Do not talk to me, then, any more of the respect you owe the king, and be careful of your words, that they may not chance to convey the slightest menace, for the king will not allow those to be threatened who do him service by others who do him disservice, and, if in case I should have, which God forbid, a master so ungrateful, I would make myself respected." Thus saying, D'Artagnan took his station haughtily in the king's cabinet, his eyes flashing, his hand on his sword, his lips trembling, affecting much more anger than he really felt. Colbert, humiliated and devoured with rage, bowed to the king as if to ask his permission to leave the room. The king, thwarted alike in pride and in curiosity, knew not which part to take. D'Artagnan saw him hesitate. To remain longer would have been a mistake. It was necessary to score a triumph over Colbert, and the only method was to touch the king so near the quick that his majesty would have no other means of extrication but choosing between the two antagonists. D'Artagnan bowed as Colbert had done. But the king, who in preference to everything else, was anxious to have all the exact details of the arrest of the surintendant of the finances, from him who had made him tremble for a moment. The king, perceiving that the ill-humour of D'Artagnan would put off for half an hour at least the details he was burning to be acquainted with. Louis, we say, forgot Colbert, who had nothing new to tell him, and recalled his captain of the musketeers. "'In the first place,' said he, "'let me see the result of your commission, monsieur. You may rest yourself hereafter.' D'Artagnan, who was just passing through the doorway, stopped at the voice of the king, retraced his steps, and Colbert was forced to leave the closet. His countenance assumed almost a purple hue, his black and threatening eyes shone with a dark fire beneath their thick brows. He stepped out, bound before the king, half drew himself up in passing D'Artagnan, and went away with death in his heart. D'Artagnan, on being left alone with the king, softened immediately, and, composing his countenance, "'Sire,' said he, "'you are a young king. It is by the dawn that people judge whether the day will be fine or dull. How, sire, will the people, whom the hand of God has placed under your law, argue of your reign, if between them and you you allow angry and violent ministers to interpose their mischief?' But let us speak of myself, sire. Let us leave a discussion that may appear idle, and perhaps inconvenient to you. Let us speak of myself. 
I have arrested Monsieur Fouquet. "'You took plenty of time about it,' said the king sharply. D'Artagnan looked at the king. "'I perceive that I have expressed myself badly. I announced to your majesty that I had arrested Monsieur Fouquet.' "'You did. And what then?' "'Well, I ought to have told your majesty that Monsieur Fouquet had arrested me. That would have been more just.' I re-established the truth, then. I have been arrested by Monsieur Fouquet. It was now the turn of Louis the Fourteenth to be surprised. His Majesty was astonished in his turn. D'Artagnan, with his quick glance, appreciated what was passing in the heart of his master. He did not allow him time to put any questions. He related, with that poetry, that picturesqueness, which perhaps he alone possessed at that period, the escape of Fouquet, the pursuit, the furious race, and lastly, the inimitable generosity of the surintendant, who might have fled ten times over, who might have killed the adversary in the pursuit, but who had preferred imprisonment, perhaps worse, to the humiliation of one who wished to rob him of his liberty. In proportion as the tale advanced, the king became agitated, devouring the narrator's words, and drumming with his fingernails upon the table. "'It results from all this, sire, in my eyes at least, that the man who conducts himself thus is a gallant man, and cannot be an enemy to the king. That is my opinion, and I repeat it to your majesty. I know what the king will say to me, and I bow to it. Reasons of state. So be it. To my ears that sounds highly respectable.' But I am a soldier, and I have received my orders. My orders are executed. Very unwillingly on my part, it is true, but they are executed. I say no more. "'Where is Monsieur Fouquet at this moment?' asked Louis, after a short silence. "'Monsieur Fouquet, sire,' replied D'Artagnan, "'is in the iron cage that Monsieur Colbert had prepared for him.' and is galloping as fast as four strong horses can drag him toward Angers. "'Why did you leave him on the road?' "'Because your majesty did not tell me to go to Angers. The proof, the best proof of what I advance, is that the king desired me to be sought for but this minute. And then I had another reason.' "'What is that?' Whilst I was with him, poor Monsieur Fouquet would never attempt to escape. "'Well!' cried the king, astonished. "'Your Majesty ought to understand, and does understand, certainly, that my warmest wish is to know that Monsieur Fouquet is at liberty. I have given him one of my brigadiers, the most stupid I could find among my musketeers, in order that the prisoner might have a chance of escaping.' "'Are you mad, Monsieur d'Artagnan?' cried the king, crossing his arms on his breast. "'Do people utter such enormities, even when they have the misfortune to think them?' "'Ah! Sire, you cannot expect that I should be an enemy to Monsieur Fouquet, after what he has just done for you and me. No, no, if you desire that he should remain under your lock and bolt, never give him in charge to me.' however closely wired might be the cage, the bird would, in the end, take wing. 
"'I am surprised,' said the king, in his sternest tone. "'You did not follow the fortunes of the man Monsieur Fouquet wished to place upon my throne. You had in him all you want, affection, gratitude. In my service, monsieur, you will only find a master.' "'If Monsieur Fouquet had not gone to seek you in the Bastille, sire,' replied D'Artagnan, with a deeply impressive manner, "'one single man would have gone there, and I should have been that man. You know that right well, sire.' The king was brought to a pause. Before that speech of his captain of the musketeers, so frankly spoken and so true, the king had nothing to offer. On hearing D'Artagnan, Louis remembered the d'Artagnan of former times, him who, at the Palais Royal, held himself concealed behind the curtains of his bed, when the people of Paris, led by Cardinal de Retz, came to assure themselves of the presence of the king. The d'Artagnan, whom he saluted with his hand at the door of his carriage, when repairing to Notre-Dame on his return to Paris. The soldier, who had quitted his service at Blois, the lieutenant he had recalled to be beside his person when the death of Mazarin restored his power, the man he had always found loyal, courageous, devoted. Louis advanced towards the door and called Colbert. Colbert had not left the corridor where the secretaries were at work. He reappeared. Colbert, did you make a perquisition on the house of Monsieur Fouquet? Yes, sire. What has it produced? Monsieur de Roncherol, who was sent with your majesty's musketeers, has remitted me some papers, replied Colbert. I will look at them. Give me your hand. My hand, sire? Yes, that I may place it in that of Monsieur d'Artagnan. In fact, Monsieur d'Artagnan, added he with a smile, turning towards the soldier, who, at sight of the clerk, had resumed his haughty attitude. "'You do not know this man. Make his acquaintance.' And he pointed to Colbert. "'He has been made but a moderately valuable servant in subaltern positions, but he will be a great man if I raise him to the foremost rank.' "'Sire!' stammered Colbert, confused with pleasure and fear. "'I always understood why.' murmured d'Artagnan in the king's ear, he was jealous. Precisely. And his jealousy confined his wings. He will henceforward be a winged serpent, grumbled the musketeer, with a remnant of hatred against his recent adversary. But Colbert, approaching him, offered to his eyes a physiognomy so different from that which he had been accustomed to see him wear, he appeared so good, so mild, so easy. His eyes took the expression of an intelligence so noble that D'Artagnan, a connoisseur in physiognomies, was moved and almost changed in his convictions. Colbert pressed his hand. "'That which the king has just told you, monsieur, proves how well his majesty is acquainted with men. The inveterate opposition I have displayed up to this day— against abuses and not against men, proves that I had it in view to prepare for my king a glorious reign, for my country a great blessing. I have many ideas, Monsieur d'Artagnan, 
you will see them expand in the sun of public peace, and if I have not the good fortune to conquer the friendship of honest men, I am at least certain, monsieur, that I shall obtain their esteem. For their admiration, monsieur, I would give my life. This change, this sudden elevation, this mute approbation of the king, gave the musketeer matter for profound reflection. He bowed civilly to Colbert, who did not take his eyes off him. The king, when he saw that they were reconciled, dismissed them. They left the room together. As soon as they were out of the cabinet, the new minister, stopping the captain, said, "'Is it possible, Monsieur d'Artagnan, that with such an eye as yours, you did not, at the first glance, at the first impression, discover what sort of man I am?' Monsieur Colbert, replied the musketeer, a ray of the sun in our eyes prevents us from seeing the most vivid flame. The man in power radiates, you know, and since you are there, why should you continue to persecute him who had just fallen into disgrace, and fallen from such a height? I, monsieur, said Colbert, oh, monsieur, I would never persecute him. I wish to administer the finances, and to administer them alone, because I am ambitious, and, above all, because I have the most entire confidence in my own merit, because I know that all the gold of this country will ebb and flow beneath my eyes, and I love to look at the king's gold, because, if I live thirty years, in thirty years not a denier of it will remain in my hands, because— with that gold, I will build granaries, castles, cities, and harbors, because I will create a marine, I will equip navies that shall waft the name of France to the most distant people, because I will create libraries and academies, because I will make France the first country in the world, and the wealthiest. These are the motives for my animosity against Monsieur Fouquet, who prevented my acting. And then, when I shall be great and strong, when France is great and strong, in my turn, then, will I cry, Mercy! Mercy, did you say? Then ask his liberty of the king. The king is only crushing him on your account. Colbert again raised his head. Monsieur, said he, you know that is not so and that the king has his own personal animosity against M. Fouquet. It is not for me to teach you that. But the king will grow tired. He will forget. The king never forgets, M. d'Artagnan. Hark! The king calls. He is going to issue an order. I have not influenced him, have I? Listen. The king, in fact, was calling his secretaries. "'Monsieur d'Artagnan,' said he, "'I am here, sire. "'Give twenty of your musketeers to Monsieur de Saint-Aignan "'to form a guard for Monsieur Fouquet.' "'D'Artagnan and Colbert exchanged looks. "'And from Angers,' continued the king, "'they will conduct the prisoner to the Bastille in Paris.' "'You were right,' said the captain to the minister. "'Saint-Aignan,' continued the king. You will have any one shot 
who shall attempt to speak privately with Monsieur Fouquet during the journey. "'But myself, sire,' said the duke. "'You, monsieur, you will only speak to him in the presence of the musketeers.' The duke bowed and departed to execute his commission. D'Artagnan was about to retire likewise, but the king stopped him. "'Monsieur,' said he, "'you will go immediately and take possession of the île and fief of Belle-Île-en-Mer.' "'Yes, sire. Alone?' "'You will take a sufficient number of troops to prevent delay, in case the place should be contumacious.' A murmur of courtly incredulity arose from the group of courtiers. "'That shall be done.' said d'artagnan i saw the place in my infancy resumed the king and i do not wish to see it again you have heard me go monsieur and do not return without the keys colbert went up to d'artagnan a commission which if you carry it out well said he will be worth a marechal's baton to you why do you employ the words if you carry it out well because it is difficult ah in what respect you have friends in belle-isle monsieur d'artagnan and it is not an easy thing for men like you to march over the bodies of their friends to obtain success d'artagnan hung his head in deepest thought whilst colbert returned to the king a quarter of an hour after the captain received the written order from the king to blow up the fortress of belle-isle in case of resistance with power of life and death over all the inhabitants or refugees and an injunction not to allow one to escape colbert was right thought d'artagnan for me the baton of a marechal of france will cost the lives of my two friends only they seem to forget that my friends are not more stupid than the birds, and that they will not wait for the hand of the fowler to extend over their wings. I will show them that hand so plainly that they will have quite time enough to see it. Poor Porthos! Poor Aramis! No, my fortune should and shall not cost your wings a feather. Having thus determined, D'Artagnan assembled the royal army, embarked it at Pambeuf, and set sail, without the loss of an unnecessary minute. End of chapter Chapter 42 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 42 Belle-Île-en-Mer At the extremity of the mole, against which the furious sea beats at the evening tide, two men, holding each other by the arm, were conversing in an animated and expansive tone, without the possibility of any other human being hearing their words, borne away as they were, one by one, by the gusts of wind, with the white foam swept from the crests of the waves. The sun had just gone down in the vast sheet of the crimsoned ocean, like a gigantic crucible. From time to time, one of these men, turning towards the east, 
cast an anxious, inquiring look over the sea. The other, interrogating the features of his companion, seemed to seek for information in his looks. Then, both silent, busied with dismal thoughts, they resumed their walk. Every one has already perceived that these two men were our proscribed heroes, Porthos and Aramis, who had taken refuge in Belle-Isle, since the ruin of their hopes, since the discomfiture of the colossal schemes of M. d'Herblay. "'It is of no use your saying anything to the contrary, my dear Aramis,' repeated Porthos, inhaling vigorously the salt breeze with which he charged his massive chest. "'It is of no use, Aramis.' The disappearance of all the fishing-boats that went out two days ago is not an ordinary circumstance. There has been no storm at sea. The weather has been constantly calm, not even the lightest gale. And even if we had had a tempest, all our boats would not have foundered. I repeat, it is strange. This complete disappearance astonishes me, I tell you. True, murmured Aramis. You are right, friend Porthos. It is true. There is something strange in it. And further, added Porthos, whose ideas the ascent of the Bishop of Vannes seemed to enlarge, and further, do you not observe that if the boats have perished, not a single plank is washed ashore? I have remarked it as well as yourself. And do you not think it strange that the only two boats we had left in the whole island, and which I sent in search of the others, Aramis here interrupted his companion by a cry, and by so sudden a movement that Porthos stopped as if he were stupefied. What do you say, Porthos? What? You have sent the two boats? In search of the others, yes, to be sure I have, replied Porthos calmly. "'Unhappy man! What have you done? Then we are indeed lost!' cried the bishop. "'Lost? What did you say?' exclaimed the terrified Porthos. "'How lost, Aramis! How are we lost?' Aramis bit his lips. "'Nothing, nothing. Your pardon. I meant to say—' "'What?' "'That if we were inclined—' If we took a fancy to make an excursion by sea, we could not. Very good, and why should that vex you? A precious pleasure, ma foi! <laughs> For my part, I don't regret it at all. What I regret is certainly not the more or less amusement we can find at Belle-Isle. What I regret, Aramis, is Pierre Fond, Brassieux, Le Vallon, beautiful France. Here we are not in France, my dear friend. We are—I know not where. Oh, I tell you, in full sincerity of soul, and your affection will excuse my frankness, but I declare to you I am not happy at Belle-Isle. No, in good truth, I am not happy. Aramis breathed a long but stifled sigh. Dear friend, replied he, that is why it is so sad a thing you have sent the two boats we had left in search of the boats which disappeared two days ago if you had not sent them away we would have departed departed and the orders aramis what orders parbleu why the orders you have been constantly in and out of season repeating to me 
that we were to hold Belle-Isle against the usurper. You know very well. That is true, murmured Aramis again. You see then plainly, my friend, that we could not depart, and that the sending away of the boats in search of the others cannot prove prejudicial to us in the very least. Aramis was silent, and his vague glances, luminous as that of an albatross, hovered for a long time over the sea, interrogating space, seeking to pierce the very horizon. "'With all that, Aramis,' continued Porthos, who adhered to his idea, and that the more closely from the bishop having apparently endorsed it, "'with all that you give me no explanation about what can have happened to these unfortunate boats.' I am assailed by cries and complaints whichever way I go. The children cry to see the desolation of the women, as if I could restore the absent husbands and fathers. What do you suppose, my friend, and how ought I to answer them? Think all you like, my good Porthos, and say nothing. This reply did not satisfy Porthos at all. He turned away grumbling something in ill-humour. Aramis stopped the valiant musketeer. "'Do you remember?' said he, in a melancholy tone, kneading the two hands of the giant between his own with affectionate cordiality. "'Do you remember, my friend, that in the glorious days of youth, do you remember, Porthos, when we were all strong and valiant, we and the other two, if we had then had an inclination to return to France?' Do you think this sheet of salt water would have stopped us? Oh, said Porthos, but six leagues. If you had seen me get astride of a plank, would you have remained on land, Porthos? No, pardieu, <laughs> no, Aramis. But nowadays, what sort of a plank should we want, my friend? I in particular. And the Seigneur de Bracieux cast a profound glance over his colossal rotundity with a loud laugh. "'And do you mean seriously to say you are not tired of Belle-Isle a little, and that you would not prefer the comforts of your dwelling, of your episcopal palace at Vannes? Come, confess!' "'No,' replied Aramis, without daring to look at Porthos. "'Let us stay where we are, then,' said his friend, with a sigh which, in spite of the efforts he made to restrain it, escaped his echoing breast. "'Let us remain, let us remain. And yet,' added he, "'and yet, if we seriously wished, but that decidedly, if we had a fixed idea, one firmly taken, to return to France, and there were not boats—' "'Have you remarked another thing, my friend?' That is, since the disappearance of our barks, during the last two days' absence of fishermen, not a single small boat has landed on the shores of the isle? Yes, certainly. You are right. I, too, have remarked it, and the observation was the more naturally made, for, before the last two fatal days, barks and shallops were as plentiful as shrimps. I must inquire said Aramis, suddenly and with great agitation. And then, if we had a raft constructed. But there are some canoes, my friend. Shall I board one? A canoe, a canoe. Can you think of such a thing, Porthos? 
a canoe to be upset in. No, no, said the Bishop of Vannes, it is not our trade to ride upon the waves. We will wait, we will wait. And Aramis continued walking about with increased agitation. Porthos, who grew tired of following all the feverish movements of his friend, Porthos, who in his faith and calmness understood nothing of the sort of exasperation which was betrayed by his companion's continual convulsive starts, Porthos stopped him. "'Let us sit down upon this rock,' said he. "'Place yourself there, close to me, Aramis, and I conjure you, for the last time, to explain to me in a manner I can comprehend, explain to me what we are doing here?' Porthos said Aramis, much embarrassed. "'I know that the false king wished to dethrone the true king. That is a fact that I understand. Well?' "'Yes,' said Aramis. "'I know that the false king formed the project of selling Belle-Isle to the English. I understand that, too.' "'Yes.' I know that we engineers and captains came and threw ourselves into Belle-Isle to take direction of the works, and the command of ten companies levied and paid by Monsieur Fouquet, or rather, the ten companies of his son-in-law. All that is plain. Aramis rose in a state of great impatience. He might be said to be a lion importuned by a gnat. Porthos held him by the arm. But what I cannot understand— what, in spite of all the efforts of my mind, and all my reflections I cannot comprehend, and never shall comprehend, is, that instead of sending us troops, instead of sending us reinforcements of men, munitions, provisions, they leave us without boats, they leave Belle-Isle without arrivals, without help. It is that, instead of establishing with us a correspondence, whether by signals, or written or verbal communications. All relations with the shore are intercepted. Tell me, Aramis, answer me, or rather, before answering me, will you allow me to tell you what I have thought? Will you hear what my idea is, the plan I have conceived? The bishop raised his head. Well, Aramis, continued Porthos, I have dreamed, I have imagined, that an event has taken place in France. I dreamt of Monsieur Fouquet all the night, of lifeless fish, of broken eggs, of chambers badly furnished, meanly kept. Villainous dreams, my dear D'Herblay, very unlucky such dreams. Porthos, what is that yonder? interrupted Aramis, rising suddenly, and pointing out to his friend a black spot upon the empurpled line of the water. "'A bark!' said Porthos. "'Yes, it is a bark. Ah, we shall have some news at last.' "'There are two, cried the bishop, on discovering another mast. Two, three, four. Five, said Porthos, in his turn. Six, seven. Ah, mon Dieu, mon Dieu, it is a fleet!' "'Our boat's returning, probably.' said Aramis very uneasily, in spite of the assurance he affected. "'They are very large for fishing-boats,' observed Porthos. "'And do you not remark, my friend, that they come from the Loire?' "'They come from the Loire, yes.' "'And look, 
everybody here sees them as well as ourselves. Look, women and children are beginning to crowd the jetty. An old fisherman passed. Are those our barks yonder? asked Aramis. The old man looked steadily into the eye of the horizon. No, monseigneur, replied he, they are lighter boars. Boats in the king's service. Boats in the royal service, replied Aramis, starting. How do you know that? said he. By the flag. But, said Porthos, the boat is scarcely visible. How the devil, my friend, can you distinguish the flag? I see there is one replied the old man. Our boats, trade lighters, do not carry any. That sort of craft is generally used for transport of troops. Ah! groaned Aramis. Vivat! cried Porthos. They are sending us reinforcements. Don't you think they are, Aramis? Probably. Unless it is the English coming. By the Loire. That would have an evil look, Porthos, for they must have come through Paris. You are right. They are reinforcements, decidedly, or provisions. Aramis leaned his head upon his hands and made no reply. Then all at once, Porthos, said he, have the alarm sounded. The alarm? Do you imagine such a thing? Yes, and let the cannoneers mount their batteries, the artillerymen be at their pieces, and be particularly watchful of the coast batteries. Porthos opened his eyes to their widest extent. He looked attentively at his friend, to convince himself he was in his proper senses. "'I will do it, my dear Porthos,' continuing Aramis in his blandest tone. "'I will go and have these orders executed myself, if you do not go, my friend.' "'Well, I will, instantly,' said Porthos, who went to execute the orders, casting all the while looks behind him, to see if the Bishop of Vannes were not deceived, and if, on recovering more rational ideas, he would not recall him. The alarm was sounded, trumpets brayed, drums rolled, the great bronze bell swung in horror from its lofty belfry. The dikes and moles were quickly filled with the curious and soldiers. Matches sparkled in the hands of the artillerymen, placed behind the large cannon bedded in their stone carriages. When every man was at his post, when all the preparations for defence were made, "'Permit me, Aramis, to try to comprehend,' whispered Porthos timidly in Aramis's ear. "'My dear friend, you will comprehend but too soon.' murmured M. Doublet, in reply to this question of his lieutenant. "'The fleet which is coming yonder, with sails unfurled, straight towards the port of Belle-Isle, is a royal fleet, is it not?' "'But as there are two kings in France, Porthos, to which of these two kings does this fleet belong?' "'Oh! You open my eyes!' replied the giant, stunned by the insinuation. And Porthos, whose eyes this reply of his friends had at last opened, or rather thickened the bandage which covered his sight, went with his best speed to the batteries to overlook his people, and exhort every one to do his duty. In the meantime, Aramis, with his eye fixed on the horizon, 
saw the ships continually drawing nearer. The people and the soldiers, perched on the summits of the rocks, could distinguish the masts, then the lower sails, and at last the hulls of the lighters, bearing at the masthead the royal flag of France. It was night when one of these vessels, which had created such a sensation among the inhabitants of Belle-Isle, dropped anchor within cannon-shot of the place. It was soon seen, notwithstanding the darkness, that some sort of agitation reigned on board the vessel, from the side of which a skiff was lowered, of which the three rowers, bending to their oars, took the direction of the port, and in a few instants struck land at the foot of the fort. The commander jumped ashore. He had a letter in his hand, which he waved in the air, and seemed to wish to communicate with somebody. This man was soon recognized by several soldiers as one of the pilots of the island. He was the captain of one of the two barks retained by Aramis, but which Porthos, in his anxiety with regard to the fate of the fishermen who had disappeared, had sent in search of the missing boats. He asked to be conducted to Monsieur d'Herblay. Two soldiers, at a signal from a sergeant, marched him between them and escorted him. Aramis was upon the quay. The envoy presented himself before the Bishop of Vannes. The darkness was almost absolute, notwithstanding the flambeau borne at a small distance by the soldiers who were following Aramis in his rounds. "'Well, Jonathan, from whom do you come?' "'Monseigneur, from those who captured me.' "'Who captured you?' "'You know, Monseigneur, we set out in search of our comrades?' "'Yes, and afterwards?' "'Well, Monseigneur, within a short league we were captured by a chasse-marais, belonging to the king.' "'Ah!' said Aramis. "'Of which king?' cried Porthos. Jonathan started. "'Speak,' continued the bishop. "'We were captured, Monseigneur.' and joined to those who had been taken yesterday morning. "'What was the cause of the mania for capturing you all?' said Porthos. "'Monsieur, to prevent us from telling you,' replied Jonathan. Porthos was again at a loss to comprehend. "'And they have released you to-day?' asked he. "'That I might tell you that they captured us, monsieur.' "'Trouble upon trouble!' thought honest Porthos. During this time Aramis was reflecting. "'Hm,' said he, "'then I suppose it is a royal fleet blockading the coasts?' "'Yes, Monseigneur.' "'Who commands it?' "'The captain of the king's musketeers.' "'D'Artagnan?' "'D'Artagnan!' exclaimed Porthos. "'I believe that is the name.' And did he give you this letter? Yes, Monseigneur. Bring the torches nearer. It is his writing, said Porthos. Aramis eagerly read the following lines. Order of the king to take Belle-Isle, or to put the garrison to the sword if they resist. Order to make prisoners of all the men of the garrison. Signed, D'Artagnan, who the day before yesterday arrested Monsieur Fouquet, for the purpose of his being sent to the Bastille. Aramis turned pale, and crushed the paper in his hands. "'What is it?' asked Porthos. "'Nothing, my friend, nothing,' 
tell me, Jonathan? Monseigneur? Did you speak to Monsieur d'Artagnan? Yes, Monseigneur. What did he say to you? That for ampler information he would speak with Monseigneur. Where? On board his own vessel. On board his vessel? And Porthos repeated, On board his vessel! Monsieur le Mousquetaire, continued Jonathan, told me to take you both on board my canoe and bring you to him. Let us go at once, exclaimed Porthos. Dear d'Artagnan! But Aramis stopped him. Are you mad? cried he. Who knows that it is not a snare? Of the other kings? said Porthos, mysteriously. A snare, in fact. That's what it is, my friend. Very possibly. What is to be done, then, if D'Artagnan sends for us? Who assures you that D'Artagnan sends for us? Well, but, but he's writing. Writing is easily counterfeited. This looks counterfeited. Unsteady. You are always right. But in the meantime we know nothing. Aramis was silent. It is true, said the good Porthos. We do not want to know anything. What shall I do? asked Jonathan. You will return on board this captain's vessel. Yes, Monseigneur. And will tell him that we beg he will himself come into the island. Ah, I comprehend, said Porthos. Yes, Monseigneur, replied Jonathan. But if the captain should refuse to come to Belle-Isle? If he refuses, as we have cannon, we will make use of them. What? Against D'Artagnan? If it is D'Artagnan, Porthos, he will come. Go, Jonathan, go. Ma foi! I no longer comprehend anything, murmured Porthos. I will make you comprehend it all, my dear friend. The time for it has come. Sit down upon this gun-carriage, open your ears, and listen well to me. Oh, pardieu! I will listen, no fear of that. May I depart, Monseigneur? cried Jonathan. Yes, be gone, and bring back an answer. Allow the canoe to pass, you men there. And the canoe pushed off to regain the fleet. Aramis took Porthos by the hand, and commenced his explanations. End of chapter. Chapter 43 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandra Dumas. Chapter 43 Explanations by Aramis. What I have to say to you, friend Porthos, will probably surprise you, but it may prove instructive. I like to be surprised, said Porthos, in a kindly tone. Do not spare me, therefore, I beg. I am hardened against emotions. Don't fear. Speak out. It is difficult, Porthos. Difficult. For in truth, I warn you a second time, 
I have very strange things, very extraordinary things, to tell you. Oh, you speak so well, my friend, that I could listen to you for days together. Speak, then, I beg, and stop. I have an idea. I will, to make your task more easy, I will, to assist you in telling me such things, question you. I shall be pleased at your doing so. What are we going to fight for, Aramis? If you ask me many such questions as that, if you would render my talk the easier by interrupting my revelations thus, Porthos, you will not help me at all. So far, on the contrary, that is the very Gordian knot. But, my friend, with a man like you, good, generous, and devoted, the confession must be bravely made. I have deceived you, my worthy friend. You have deceived me. Good heavens, yes. Was it for my good, Aramis? I thought so, Porthos. I thought so sincerely, my friend. Then, said the honest seigneur of Brassier, you have rendered me a service, and I thank you for it. For if you had not deceived me, I might have deceived myself. In what, then, have you deceived me? Tell me. In that I was serving the usurper against whom Louis the Fourteenth at this moment, is directing his efforts. The usurper, said Porthos, scratching his head. That is, well, I do not quite clearly comprehend. He is one of the two kings who are contending for the crown of France. Very well. Then you were serving him who is not Louis the Fourteenth. You have hit the matter in one word. It follows that... It follows that we are rebels, my poor friend. The devil! The devil! cried Porthos, much disappointed. Oh, but, dear Porthos, be calm. We shall still find means of getting out of the affair, trust me. It is not that which makes me uneasy, replied Porthos. That which alone touches me is that ugly word, rebels. Ah, but... And so, according to this, the duchy that was promised me, it was the usurper that was to give it to you. And that is not the same thing, Aramis, said Porthos majestically. My friend, if it had only depended upon me, you should have become a prince. Porthos began to bite his nails in a melancholy way. That is where you have been wrong continued he, in deceiving me, for that promised duchy I reckoned upon. Oh, I reckoned upon it seriously, knowing you to be a man of your word, Aramis. Poor Porthos, pardon me, I implore you. So then, continued Porthos, without replying to the bishop's prayer, so then it seems I have quite fallen out with Louis the Fourteenth. Oh, I will settle all that, my good friend. I will settle all that. I will take it on myself alone. Aramis! No, no, Porthos, I conjure you, let me act. No false generosity, no inopportune devotedness. You knew nothing of my projects. You have done nothing of yourself. With me, it is different. I alone am the author of this plot. I stood in need of my inseparable companion— 
I called upon you, and you came to me in remembrance of our ancient device, all for one, one for all. My crime is that I was an egotist. Now that is a word I like, said Porthos, and seeing that you have acted entirely for yourself, it is impossible for me to blame you. It is natural. And upon this sublime reflection, Porthos pressed his friend's hand cordially. In presence of this ingenuous greatness of soul, Aramis felt his own littleness. It was the second time he had been compelled to bend before real superiority of heart, which is more imposing than brilliancy of mind. He replied by a mute and energetic pressure to the endearment of his friend. "'Now,' said Porthos, "'that we have come to an explanation, now that I am perfectly aware of our situation with respect to Louis the Fourteenth, I think, my friend, it is time to make me comprehend the political intrigue of which we are the victims, for I plainly see there is a political intrigue at the bottom of all this. D'Artagnan, my good Porthos, D'Artagnan is coming, and will detail it to you in all its circumstances. But, excuse me, I am deeply grieved. I am bowed down with mental anguish, and I have need of all my presence of mind, all my powers of reflection— to extricate you from the false position in which I have so imprudently involved you. But nothing can be more clear, nothing more plain than your position henceforth. The King Louis the Fourteenth has no longer now but one enemy. That enemy is myself, myself alone. I have made you a prisoner. You have followed me. Today I liberate you. You fly back to your prince." You can perceive, Porthos, there is not one difficulty in all this. Do you think so? said Porthos. I am quite sure of it. Then why? said the admirable good sense of Porthos. Then why, if we are in such an easy position, why, my friend, do we prepare cannon, muskets, and engines of all sorts? It seems to me it would be much more simple to say to Captain D'Artagnan, my dear friend, we have been mistaken. That error is to be repaired. Open the door to us, let us pass through, and we will say good-bye. Ah, that, said Aramis, shaking his head. Why do you say that? Do you not approve of my plan, my friend? I see a difficulty in it. What is it? the hypothesis that D'Artagnan may come with orders which will oblige us to defend ourselves. What? Defend ourselves against D'Artagnan? Ha! Folly! Against the good D'Artagnan! Aramis once more replied by shaking his head. Porthos, at length, said he, if I have had the matches lighted and the guns pointed, if I have had the signal of alarm sounded, if I have called every man to his post upon the ramparts, those good ramparts of Belle-Isle which you have so well fortified, it was not for nothing. Wait to judge, or rather, no, do not wait. What can I do? If I knew, my friend, I would have told you. But there is one thing much more simple than defending ourselves. A boat, and a way for France, where— My dear friend— said Aramis, smiling with a strong shade of sadness. 
do not let us reason like children. Let us be men in council and in execution. But hark! I hear a hail for landing at the port. Attention, Porthos! Serious attention! It is D'Artagnan, no doubt, said Porthos, in a voice of thunder, approaching the parapet. Yes, it is I, replied the captain of the musketeers, running lightly up the steps of the mole, and gaining rapidly the little esplanade on which his two friends waited for him. As soon as he came towards them, Porthos and Aramis observed an officer who followed D'Artagnan, treading apparently in his very steps. The captain stopped upon the stairs of the mole when halfway up. His companions imitated him. "'Make your men draw back!' cried D'Artagnan to Porthos and Aramis. "'Let them retire out of hearing!' This order, given by Porthos, was executed immediately. Then D'Artagnan, turning towards him, who followed him, "'Monsieur,' said he, "'we are no longer on board the king's fleet.' where, in virtue of your order, you spoke so arrogantly to me just now. "'Monsieur,' replied the officer, "'I did not speak arrogantly to you. I simply but rigorously obeyed instructions. I was commanded to follow you. I follow you. I am directed not to allow you to communicate with any one without taking cognizance of what you do. I am in duty bound accordingly.' to overhear your conversations. D'Artagnan trembled with rage, and Porthos and Aramis, who heard this dialogue, trembled likewise, but with uneasiness and fear. D'Artagnan, biting his moustache with that vivacity which denoted in him exasperation, closely to be followed by an explosion, approached the officer. "'Monsieur,' said he in a low voice, so much the more impressive, that, affecting calm, it threatened tempest. Monsieur, when I sent a canoe hither, you wished to know what I wrote to the defenders of Belle-Isle. You produced an order to that effect, and in my turn I instantly showed you the note I had written. When the skipper of the boat sent by me returned, when I received the reply of these two gentlemen, and he pointed to Aramis and Porthos, you heard every word of what the messenger said. All that was plainly in your orders. All that was well executed, very punctually, was it not? Yes, monsieur, stammered the officer. Yes, without doubt, but... Monsieur, continued D'Artagnan, growing warm. Monsieur, when I manifested the intention of quitting my vessel to cross to Belle-Isle, you demanded to accompany me. I did not hesitate. I brought you with me. You are now at Belle-Isle, are you not? Yes, monsieur, but... But the question no longer is of monsieur Colbert, who has given you that order, or of whomsoever in the world you are following the instructions. The question now is of a man who is a clog upon monsieur d'Artagnan, and who is alone with monsieur d'Artagnan upon steps whose feet are bathed by thirty feet of salt water. A bad position for that man. A bad position, monsieur. I warn you. But, monsieur, if I am a restraint upon you, said the officer, timidly and almost faintly, it is my duty which... Monsieur, you have had the misfortune, either you or those that sent you, 
to insult me. It is done. I cannot seek redress from those who employ you. They are unknown to me, or are at too great a distance. But you are under my hand, and I swear that if you make one step behind me when I raise my feet to go up to those gentlemen, I swear to you by my name, I will cleave your head in two with my sword, and pitch you into the water. Oh, it will happen, it will happen. I have only been six times angry in my life, monsieur, and all five preceding times I killed my man. The officer did not stir. He became pale under this terrible threat, but replied with simplicity, Monsieur, you are wrong in acting against my orders. Porthos and Aramis, mute and trembling at the top of the parapet, cried to the musketeer, "'Good D'Artagnan, take care!' D'Artagnan made them a sign to keep silence, raised his foot with ominous calmness to mount the stair, and turned round, sword in hand, to see if the officer followed him. The officer made a sign of the cross, and stepped up. Porthos and Aramis, who knew their D'Artagnan, uttered a cry and rushed down to prevent the blow they thought they already heard. But D'Artagnan passed his sword into his left hand. "'Monsieur,' said he to the officer, in an agitated voice, "'you are a brave man. You will all the better comprehend what I am going to say to you now.' "'Speak, Monsieur D'Artagnan, speak,' replied the officer. "'These gentlemen we have just seen, and against whom you have orders, are my friends.' "'I know they are, monsieur. "'You can understand whether or not I ought to act towards them as your instructions prescribe.' "'I understand your reserve.' "'Very well. Permit me, then, to converse with them without a witness.' "'Monsieur d'Artagnan, if I yield to your request—' If I do that which you beg me, I break my word. But if I do not do it, I disoblige you. I prefer the one dilemma to the other. Converse with your friends, and do not despise me, monsieur, for doing this for your sake, whom I esteem and honour. Do not despise me for committing for you, and you alone, an unworthy act. D'Artagnan, much agitated, threw his arm round the neck of the young man, and then went up to his friends. The officer, enveloped in his cloak, sat down on the damp, weed-covered steps. "'Well,' said D'Artagnan to his friends, "'such is my position. Judge for yourselves.' All three embraced as in the glorious days of their youth. "'What is the meaning of all these preparations?' said Porthos. "'You ought to have a suspicion of what they signify,' said D'Artagnan. "'Not any, I assure you, my dear captain, for, in fact, I have done nothing. No more has Aramis,' the worthy baron hastened to say. D'Artagnan darted a reproachful look at the prelate, which penetrated that hardened heart. "'Dear Porthos!' cried the bishop of Vannes. "'You see what is being done against you,' said D'Artagnan. "'Interception of all boats coming to or going from Belle-Isle.' your means of transport seized. If you had endeavoured to fly, you would have fallen into the hands of the cruisers that plough the sea in all directions, on the watch for you. The king wants you to be taken, 
and he will take you. D'Artagnan tore at his grey moustache. Aramis grew sombre, Porthos angry. My idea was this, continued D'Artagnan, to make you both come on board, to keep you near me, and restore you your liberty. But now, who can say, when I return to my ship, I may not find a superior, that I may not find secret orders which will take from me my command, and give it to another, who will dispose of me and you without hope of help. We must remain at Belle-Isle, said Aramis resolutely, and I assure you, for my part, I will not surrender easily. Porthos said nothing. D'Artagnan remarked the silence of his friend. I have another trial to make of this officer, of this brave fellow who accompanies me, and whose courageous resistance makes me very happy, for it denotes an honest man, who, though an enemy, is a thousand times better than a complacent coward. Let us try to learn from him what his instructions are, and what his orders permit or forbid. Let us try, said Aramis. D'Artagnan went to the parapet, leaned over towards the steps of the mole, and called the officer, who immediately came up. Monsieur, said D'Artagnan, after having exchanged the cordial courtesies natural between gentlemen who know and appreciate each other, Monsieur, if I wish to take away these gentlemen from here, what would you do? I should not oppose it, monsieur, but having direct explicit orders to put them under guard, I should detain them. Ah, said D'Artagnan. That's all over, said Aramis gloomily. Porthos did not stir. But still take Porthos, said the bishop of Vannes. He can prove to the king, and I will help him do so, and you too, Monsieur D'Artagnan, that he had nothing to do with this affair. Hm, said D'Artagnan. Will you come? Will you follow me, Porthos? The king is merciful. "'I want time for reflection,' said Porthos. "'You will remain here, then?' "'Until fresh orders,' said Aramis, with vivacity. "'Until we have an idea,' resumed D'Artagnan, "'and I now believe that will not be long, for I have one already.' "'Let us say adieu, then,' said Aramis. But in truth, my good Porthos, you ought to go. No, said the latter, laconically. As you please, replied Aramis, a little wounded in his susceptibilities at the morose tone of his companion. Only I am reassured by the promise of an idea from D'Artagnan, an idea I fancy I have divined. Let us see, said the musketeer, placing his ear near Aramis's mouth. The latter spoke several words rapidly, to which D'Artagnan replied, "'That is it, precisely.' "'Infallible!' cried Aramis. "'During the first emotion this resolution will cause, take care of yourself, Aramis.' "'Oh, don't be afraid.' "'Now, monsieur,' said D'Artagnan to the officer, "'thanks, a thousand thanks. You have made yourself three friends for life.' "'Yes.' added Aramis. Porthos alone said nothing, but merely bowed. D'Artagnan, having tenderly embraced his two old friends, 
left Belle-Isle with the inseparable companion with whom M. Colbert had settled him. Thus, with the exception of the explanation with which the worthy Porthos had been willing to be satisfied, nothing had changed in appearance in the fate of one or the other. Only, said Aramis, there is D'Artagnan's idea. D'Artagnan did not return on board without profoundly analyzing the idea he had discovered. Now, we know that whatever D'Artagnan did examine, according to custom, daylight was certain to illuminate. As to the officer, now grown mute again, he had full time for meditation. Therefore, on putting his foot on board his vessel, moored within cannon-shot of the island, the captain of the musketeers had already got together all his means, offensive and defensive. He immediately assembled his council, which consisted of the officers serving under his orders. These were eight in number, a chief of the maritime forces, a major directing the artillery, an engineer, the officer we are acquainted with, and four lieutenants. Having assembled them, D'Artagnan arose, took off his hat, and addressed them thus. "'Gentlemen, I have been to reconnoitre Belle-Île-en-Mer, and I have found in it a good and solid garrison. Moreover, preparations are made for a defence that may prove troublesome. I therefore intend to send for two of the principal officers of the place, that we may converse with them. Having separated them from their troops and cannon, we shall be better able to deal with them, particularly by reasoning with them. Is not this your opinion, gentlemen? The major of artillery rose. Monsieur, said he, with respect but firmness, I have heard you say that the place is preparing to make a troublesome defence. The place is then, as you know, determined on rebellion? D'Artagnan was visibly put out by this reply, but he was not the man to allow himself to be subdued by a trifle, and resumed. Monsieur, said he, your reply is just, but you are ignorant that Belle-Isle is a fief of Monsieur Fouquet's, and that former monarchs gave the right to the seigneurs of Belle-Isle to arm their people. The major made a movement. Oh, do not interrupt me, continued D'Artagnan. You are going to tell me that that right to arm themselves against the English was not a right to arm themselves against their king. But it is not Monsieur Fouquet, I suppose, who holds Belle-Isle at this moment, since I arrested Monsieur Fouquet the day before yesterday. Now the inhabitants and defenders of Belle-Isle know nothing of this arrest. You would announce it to them in vain. It is a thing so unheard of and extraordinary, so unexpected, that they would not believe you. A Breton serves his master, and not his master's. He serves his master till he has seen him dead. Now the Bretons, as far as I know, have not seen the body of Monsieur Fouquet. It is not then surprising they hold out against that which is neither Monsieur Fouquet nor his signature. The major bowed in token of assent. That is why, continued D'Artagnan, I propose to cause two of the principal officers of the garrison to come on board my vessel. They will see you, gentlemen. They will see the forces we have at our disposal. They will consequently know to what they have to trust, and the fate that attends them, in case of rebellion. We will affirm to them, upon our honour, that Monsieur Fouquet is a prisoner, and that all resistance can only be prejudicial to them. We will tell them that at the first cannon fired, 
there will be no further hope of mercy from the king. Then, or so at least I trust, they will resist no longer. They will yield up without fighting, and we shall have a place given up to us in a friendly way, which it might cost prodigious efforts to subdue. The officer who had followed D'Artagnan to Belle-Isle was preparing to speak, but D'Artagnan interrupted him. "'Yes, I know what you are going to tell me, monsieur. I know that there is an order of the king's to prevent all secret communications with the defenders of Belle-Isle, and that is exactly why I do not offer to communicate except in presence of my staff.' And D'Artagnan made an inclination of the head to his officers, who knew him well enough to attach a certain value to the condescension. The officers looked at each other as if to read each other's opinions in their eyes, with the intention of evidently acting, should they agree, according to the desire of D'Artagnan. And already the latter saw with joy that the result of their consent would be sending a bark to Porthos and Aramis, when the king's officer drew from a pocket a folded paper, which he placed in the hands of D'Artagnan. This paper bore upon its superscription the number one. "'What more?' murmured the surprised captain. "'Read, monsieur,' said the officer, with a courtesy that was not free from sadness. D'Artagnan, full of mistrust, unfolded the paper and read these words. "'Prohibition to Monsieur D'Artagnan to assemble any council whatever, or to deliberate in any way before Belle-Isle be surrendered and the prisoners shot. Signed, Louis.' D'Artagnan repressed the quiver of impatience that ran through his whole body, and, with a gracious smile, "'That is well, monsieur,' said he. "'The king's orders shall be complied with.'" End of chapter Chapter Forty Four of the Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas. Chapter Forty Four Result of the Ideas of the King and the Ideas of D'Artagnan. The blow was direct, it was severe, mortal. D'Artagnan, furious at having been anticipated by an idea of the king's, did not despair, however, even yet, and reflecting upon the idea he had brought back from Belle-Isle, he elicited therefrom novel means of safety for his friends. "'Gentlemen,' said he, suddenly, "'since the king has charged some other than myself with his secret orders, it must be because I no longer possess his confidence.' and I should really be unworthy of it if I had the courage to hold a command subject to so many injurious suspicions. Therefore I will go immediately and carry my resignation to the king. I tender it before you all, enjoining you all to fall back with me upon the coast of France, in such a way as not to compromise the safety of the forces His Majesty has confided to me. For this purpose, return all to your posts, Within an hour we shall have the ebb of the tide. To your post, gentlemen. I suppose, added he, on seeing that all prepared to obey him, except the surveillant officer, you have no orders to object this time? 
and D'Artagnan almost triumphed while speaking these words. This plan would prove the safety of his friends. The blockade once raised, they might embark immediately, and set sail for England or Spain, without fear of being molested. Whilst they were making their escape, D'Artagnan would return to the king, would justify his return by the indignation which the mistrust of Colbert had raised in him. He would be sent back with full powers, and he would take Belle-Isle, that is to say, the cage, after the birds had flown. But to this plan the officer opposed a further order of the king's. It was thus conceived. From the moment M. d'Artagnan shall have manifested the desire of giving in his resignation, he shall no longer be reckoned leader of the expedition, and every officer placed under his orders shall be held to no longer obey him. Moreover, the said M. d'Artagnan, having lost that quality of leader of the army sent against Belle-Isle, shall set out immediately for France, accompanied by the officer who will have remitted the message to him, and who will consider him a prisoner for whom he is answerable. Brave and careless as he was, D'Artagnan turned pale. Everything had been calculated with a depth of precognition, which for the first time in thirty years recalled to him the solid foresight and inflexible logic of the great cardinal. He leaned his head on his hand, thoughtful, scarcely breathing. "'If I were to put this order in my pocket,' thought he, "'who would know it? What would prevent my doing it? Before the king had had time to be informed, I should have saved those poor fellows yonder. Let us exercise some small audacity. My head is not one of those the executioner strikes off for disobedience. We will disobey.' But at the moment he was about to adopt this plan, he saw the officers around him reading similar orders, which the passive agent of the thoughts of that infernal Colbert had distributed to them. This contingency of his disobedience had been foreseen, as all the rest had been. "'Monsieur,' said the officer, coming up to him, "'I await your good pleasure to depart.' "'I am ready, monsieur.' replied D'Artagnan, grinding his teeth. The officer immediately ordered a canoe to receive M. D'Artagnan and himself. At sight of this he became almost distraught with rage. "'How,' stammered he, "'will you carry on the directions of the different corps?' "'When you are gone, monsieur,' replied the commander of the fleet, "'it is to me the command of the whole is committed.' "'Then, monsieur,' rejoined Colbert's man, addressing the new leader. "'It is for you that this last order remitted to me is intended. Let us see your powers.' "'Here they are,' said the officer, exhibiting the royal signature. "'Here are your instructions,' replied the officer, placing the folded paper in his hands, and turning round towards D'Artagnan. "'Come, monsieur,' said he, in an agitated voice, such despair did he behold in that man of iron. Do me the favour to depart at once. Immediately, articulated D'Artagnan, feebly, subdued, crushed by implacable impossibility. And he painfully subsided into the little boat, which started, favoured by wind and tide, for the coast of France. The king's guards embarked with him. The musketeer still preserved the hope of reaching Nantes quickly, 
and of pleading the cause of his friends eloquently enough to incline the king to mercy. The bark flew like a swallow. D'Artagnan distinctly saw the land of France profiled in black against the white clouds of night. "'Ah, monsieur,' said he in a low voice to the officer to whom, for an hour, he had ceased speaking, "'what would I give to know the instructions for the new commander? They are all pacific, are they not? And—' He did not finish. The thunder of a distant cannon rolled athwart the waves, another, and two or three still louder. D'Artagnan shuddered. "'They have commenced the siege of Belle-Isle,' replied the officer. The canoe had just touched the soil of France. End of chapter Chapter 45 of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas. Chapter 45 The Ancestors of Porthos. When D'Artagnan left Aramis and Porthos, the latter returned to the principal fort in order to converse with greater liberty. Porthos, still thoughtful, was a restraint on Aramis, whose mind had never felt itself more free. "'Dear Porthos,' said he suddenly, "'I will explain D'Artagnan's idea to you.' "'What idea, Aramis?' "'An idea to which we shall owe our liberty within twelve hours.' "'Ah, indeed,' said Porthos, much astonished. "'Let us hear it.' "'Did you remark?' In the scene our friend had with the officer, that certain orders constrained him with regard to us? Yes, I did notice that. Well, D'Artagnan is going to give in his resignation to the king, and during the confusion that will result from his absence, we will get away. Or rather, you will get away, Porthos, if there is possibility of flight for only one. Here Porthos shook his head and replied, we will escape together, Aramis, or we will stay together. Thine is a right, a generous heart, said Aramis. Only your melancholy uneasiness affects me. I am not uneasy, said Porthos. Then you are angry with me. I am not angry with you. Then why, my friend, do you put on such a dismal countenance? I will tell you, I am making my will and while saying these words the good Porthos looked sadly in the face of Aramis. "'Your will!' cried the bishop. "'What, then? Do you think yourself lost?' "'I feel fatigued. It is the first time, and there is a custom in our family.' "'What is it, my friend?' "'My grandfather was a man twice as strong as I am.' "'Indeed,' said Aramis. Then your grandfather must have been Samson himself. No, his name was Antoine. Well, he was about my age, when setting out one day for the chase. He felt his legs weak, the man who had never known what weakness was before. What was the meaning of that fatigue, my friend? Nothing good, as you will see, for having set out, complaining still of weakness of the legs, he met a wild boar, which made head against him. 
He missed him with his arquebus, and was ripped up by the beast and died immediately. There is no reason in that why you should alarm yourself, dear Porthos. Oh, you will see. My father was as strong again as I am. He was a rough soldier, under Henry the Third and Henry the Fourth. His name was not Antoine, but Gaspard, the same as Monsieur de Coligny. Always on horseback, he had never known what lassitude was. One evening, as he rose from table, his legs failed him. He had supped heartily, perhaps, said Aramis, and that was why he staggered. Bah! A friend of Monsieur de Bassompierre? <laughs> Nonsense! No, no, he was astonished at this lassitude, and said to my mother, who laughed at him, Would not one believe I was going to meet with a wild boar, as the late Monsieur de Vallon, my father, did? Well, said Aramis, well, having this weakness, my father insisted upon going down into the garden, instead of going to bed. His foot slipped on the first stair. The staircase was steep. My father fell against a stone in which an iron hinge was fixed. The hinge gashed his temple, and he was stretched out dead upon the spot. Aramis raised his eyes to his friend. These are two extraordinary circumstances, said he. Let us not infer that there may succeed a third. It is not becoming in a man of your strength to be superstitious, my brave Porthos. Besides, when were your legs known to fail? Never have you stood so firm, so haughtily. Why, you could carry a house on your shoulders. At this moment, said Porthos, I feel myself pretty active, but at times I vacillate, I sink. And lately this phenomenon, as you say, has occurred four times. I will not say this frightens me, but it annoys me. Life is an agreeable thing. I have money, I have fine estates, I have horses that I love, I have also friends that I love. D'Artagnan, Athos, Raoul, and you. The admirable Porthos did not even take the trouble to dissimulate in the very presence of Aramis the rank he gave him in his friendship. Aramis pressed his hand. "'We will still live many years,' said he, "'to preserve to the world such specimens of its rarest men. Trust yourself to me, my friend. We have no reply from D'Artagnan. That is a good sign. He must have given orders to get the vessels together and clear the sea. On my part I have just issued directions that a bark should be rolled on rollers to the mouth of the great cavern of Lachmeria, which you know, where we have so often lain in wait for the foxes. Yes, and which terminates at the little creek by a trench, where we discovered the day that splendid fox escaped that way. Precisely. In case of misfortunes, a bark is to be concealed for us in that cavern. Indeed, it must be there by this time. We will wait for a favorable moment, and during the night we will go to sea. That is a grand idea. What shall we gain by it? We shall gain this. Nobody knows that grotto, or rather its issue, except ourselves and two or three hunters of the island. We shall gain this, that if the island is occupied, the scouts, seeing no bark upon the shore, will never imagine we can escape, and will cease to watch. I understand. Well, 
That weakness in the legs? Oh, better, much, just now. You see, then, plainly, that everything conspires to give us quietude and hope. D'Artagnan will sweep the sea and leave us free. No royal fleet or descent to be dreaded. Viva Dieu! Porthos, we have still half a century of magnificent adventure before us. And if I once touch Spanish ground, I swear to you, added the bishop with terrible energy, that your brevet of duke is not such a chance as it is said to be. We live by hope, said Porthos, enlivened by the warmth of his companion. All at once a cry resounded in their ears. To arms! To arms! This cry, repeated by a hundred throats, piercing the chamber where the two friends were conversing, carried surprise to one, and uneasiness to the other. Aramis opened the window. He saw a crowd of people running with flambeaux. Women were seeking places of safety. The armed population were hastening to their posts. "'The fleet! The fleet!' cried a soldier, who recognized Aramis. "'The fleet?' repeated the latter. "'Within half-cannon-shot!' continued the soldier. "'To arms!' cried Aramis. "'To arms!' repeated Porthos formidably, and both rushed forth towards the mole to place themselves within the shelter of the batteries. Boats, laden with soldiers, were seen approaching, and in three directions, for the purpose of landing at three points at once. "'What must be done?' said an officer of the guard. "'Stop them, and if they persist, fire,' said Aramis. Five minutes later the cannonade commenced. These were the shots that D'Artagnan had heard as he landed in France. But the boats were too near the mole to allow the cannon to aim correctly. They landed, and the combat commenced hand to hand. "'What's the matter, Porthos?' said Aramis to his friend. "'Nothing, nothing, only my legs. It is really incomprehensible.' They will be better when we charge. In fact, Porthos and Aramis did charge with such vigor, and so thoroughly animated their men, that the royalists re-embarked precipitately, without gaining anything but the wounds they carried away. "'Eh, hey, but Porthos!' cried Aramis. "'We must have a prisoner. Quick, quick!' Porthos bent over the stair of the mole, and seized by the nape of the neck one of the officers of the royal army, who was waiting to embark till all his people should be in the boat. The arm of the giant lifted up his prey, which served him as a buckler, and he recovered himself without a shot being fired at him. "'Here is a prisoner for you,' said Porthos, coolly, to Aramis. "'Well!' cried the latter, laughing. "'Did you not calumniate your legs?' "'It was not with my legs I captured him,' said Porthos. "'It was with my arms.' End of chapter. Chapter 46 of The Man in the Iron Mask This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas Chapter 46 The Son of Biscarat the Bretons of the Isle were very proud of this victory. Aramis did not encourage them in the feeling. "'What will happen?' said he to Porthos, when everybody was gone home. 
will be that the anger of the king will be roused by the account of the resistance, and that these brave people will be decimated or shot when they are taken, which cannot fail to take place. "'From which it results, then,' said Porthos, "'that what we have done is of not the slightest use.' "'For the moment it may be,' replied the bishop, "'for we have a prisoner from whom we shall learn what our enemies are preparing to do.' "'Yes, let us interrogate the prisoner,' said Porthos, "'and the means of making him speak are very simple. "'We are going to supper. "'We will invite him to join us. "'As he drinks, he will talk.' "'This was done. "'The officer was at first rather uneasy, "'but became reassured on seeing what sort of men he had to deal with. "'He gave, without having any fear of compromising himself, "'all the details imaginable of the resignation and departure of D'Artagnan.' He explained how, after that departure, the new leader of the expedition had ordered a surprise upon Belle-Isle. There his explanations stopped. Aramis and Porthos exchanged a glance that evinced their despair. No more dependence to be placed now on D'Artagnan's fertile imagination. No further resource in the event of defeat. Aramis, continuing his interrogations, asked the prisoner what the leaders of the expedition contemplated doing with the leaders of Belle-Isle. "'The orders are,' replied he, "'to kill during combat, or hang afterwards.' Porthos and Aramis looked at each other again, and the colour mounted to their faces. "'I am too light for the gallows,' replied Aramis. "'People like me are not hung.' "'And I am too heavy,' said Porthos. "'People like me break the cord.' "'I am sure,' said the prisoner, gallantly, "'that we could have guaranteed you the exact kind of death you preferred.' "'A thousand thanks,' said Aramis, seriously. Porthos bowed. "'One more cup of wine to your health,' said he, drinking himself. From one subject to another the chat with the officer was prolonged. He was an intelligent gentleman, and suffered himself to be led on by the charm of Aramis's wit and Porthos's cordial bonhomie. "'Pardon me,' said he, "'if I address a question to you, but men who are in their sixth bottle have a clear right to forget themselves a little.' "'Address it!' cried Porthos. "'Address it!' "'Speak,' said Aramis." "'Were you not, gentlemen, both in the musketeers of the late king?' "'Yes, monsieur, and amongst the best of them, if you please,' said Porthos. "'That is true. I should say even the best of all soldiers, monsieur, if I did not fear to offend the memory of my father.' "'Of your father?' cried Aramis. "'Do you know what my name is?' "'Ma foi! No, monsieur, but you can tell us, and—' I am called Georges de Biscarat. Oh! cried Porthos in his turn. Biscarat! Do you remember that name, Aramis? Biscarat, reflected the bishop. It seems to me. Try to recollect, monsieur, said the officer. Poor Dieu, that won't take me long, said Porthos. Biscarat, called cardinal one of the four who interrupted us on the day on which we formed our friendship with d'artagnan sword in hand precisely gentlemen the only one cried aramis eagerly we could not scratch consequently a capital blade 
said the prisoner. "'That's true, most true,' exclaimed both friends together. "'Ma foi! Monsieur Biscarat, we are delighted to make the acquaintance of such a brave man's son.' Biscarat pressed the hands held out by the two musketeers. Aramis looked at Porthos as much as to say, "'Here is a man who will help us,' and without delay. "'Confess, monsieur,' said he, "'that it is good to have once been a good man.' "'My father always said so, monsieur.' "'Confess likewise that it is a sad circumstance in which you find yourself, a falling in with men destined to be shot or hung, and to learn that these men are old acquaintances, in fact, hereditary friends. Oh, you are not reserved for such a frightful fate as that, messieurs and friends,' said the young man, warmly. "'Bah, you said so yourself.' "'I said so just now, when I did not know you, but now that I know you, I say, you will evade this dismal fate, if you wish.' "'How, if we wish?' echoed Aramis, whose eyes beamed with intelligence as he looked alternately at the prisoner and Porthos. "'Provided,' continued Porthos, looking in his turn with noble intrepidity at M. Biscarat and the bishop, "'provided nothing disgraceful be required of us.' "'Nothing at all will be required of you, gentlemen,' replied the officer. "'What should they ask of you? If they find you, they will kill you.' That is a predetermined thing. Try, then, gentlemen, to prevent their finding you. "'I don't think I am mistaken,' said Porthos, with dignity. "'But it appears evident to me that if they want to find us, they must come and seek us here.' "'In that you are perfectly right, my worthy friend,' replied Aramis, constantly consulting with his looks the countenance of Biscarat, who had grown silent and constrained. You wish, Monsieur de Biscarat, to say something to us, to make us some overture, and you dare not. Is that true? Ah, gentlemen and friends, it is because by speaking I betray the watchword. But hark, I hear a voice that frees mine by dominating it. Cannon, said Porthos. Cannon and musketry, too, cried the bishop. On hearing at a distance, among the rocks, these sinister reports of a combat which they thought had ceased. "'What can that be?' asked Porthos. "'Eh, pardieu!' cried Aramis. "'That is just what I expected.' "'What is that?' "'That the attack made by you was nothing but a feint. Is that not true, monsieur? And whilst your companions allowed themselves to be repulsed, you were certain of effecting a landing on the other side of the island. Oh, several, monsieur. We are lost, then, said the bishop of Vannes quietly. Lost, that is possible, replied the seigneur de Pierrefonds. But we are not taken or hung. And so saying, he rose from the table, went to the wall, and coolly took down his sword and pistols, which he examined with the care of an old soldier who is preparing for battle, and who feels that life, in a great measure, depends upon the excellence and right conditions of his arms. At the report of the cannon, at the news of the surprise which might deliver up the island to the royal troops, the terrified crowd rushed precipitately to the fort to demand assistance and advice from their leaders. 
Aramis, pale and downcast, between two flambeaux, showed himself at the window which looked into the principal court, full of soldiers waiting for orders, and bewildered inhabitants imploring succour. "'My friends,' said D'Herblay, in a grave and sonorous voice, "'Monsieur Fouquet, your protector, your friend, your father,' has been arrested by an order of the king, and thrown into the Bastille. A sustained yell of vengeful fury came floating up to the window at which the bishop stood, and enveloped him in a magnetic field. "'Avenge, Monsieur Fouquet!' cried the most excited of his hearers. "'Death to the royalists!' "'No, my friends,' replied Aramis solemnly. "'No, my friends, no resistance. The king is master in his kingdom.' The king is the mandatory of God. The king and God have struck Monsieur Fouquet. Humble yourselves before the hand of God. Love God and the king, who have struck Monsieur Fouquet. But do not avenge your seigneur. Do not think of avenging him. You would sacrifice yourselves in vain. You, your wives and children, your property, your liberty. Lay down your arms, my friends. Lay down your arms, since the king commands you so to do, and retire peaceably to your dwellings. It is I who ask you to do so. It is I who beg you to do so. It is I who now, in the hour of need, command you to do so, in the name of Monsieur Fouquet. The crowd collected under the window uttered a prolonged roar of anger and terror. The soldiers of Louis XIV have reached the island continued Aramis. From this time it would no longer be a fight betwixt them and you. It would be a massacre. Begone, then, begone and forget. This time I command you, in the name of the Lord of Hosts. The mutineers retired slowly, submissive, silent. Ah, what have you just been saying, my friend? said Porthos. Monsieur, said Biscarat to the bishop, you may save all these inhabitants, but thus you will neither save yourself nor your friend. Monsieur de Biscarat, said the Bishop of Vannes, with a singular accent of nobility and courtesy. Monsieur de Biscarat, be kind enough to resume your liberty. I am very willing to do so, monsieur, but that would render us a service, for when announcing to the king's lieutenant, the submission of the islanders, you will perhaps obtain some grace for us on informing him of the manner in which that submission has been effected. Grace, replied Porthos with flashing eyes, what is the meaning of that word? Aramis touched the elbow of his friend roughly, as he had been accustomed to do in the days of their youth, when he wanted to warn Porthos that he had committed, or was about to commit, a blunder. Porthos understood him, and was silent immediately. "'I will go, messieurs,' replied Biscarat, a little surprised likewise at the word grace, pronounced by the haughty musketeer, of, and to whom, but a few minutes before, he had related with so much enthusiasm the heroic exploits with which his father had delighted him. "'Go then, monsieur Biscarat,' said Aramis, bowing to him and at parting receive the expression of our entire gratitude. But you, monsieur, you whom I think it is an honour to call my friends, 
since you have been willing to accept that title, what will become of you in the meantime?' replied the officer, very much agitated at taking leave of the two ancient adversaries of his father. "'We will wait here.' "'But, mon Dieu, the order is precise and formal.' "'I am Bishop of Vannes, Monsieur de Biscarat, and they no more shoot a bishop than they hang a gentleman.' "'Ah, yes, monsieur, yes, monseigneur,' replied Biscarat. "'It is true, you are right. There is still that chance for you. Then I will depart. I will repair to the commander of the expedition, the king's lieutenant. Adieu, then, messieurs, or rather, to meet again, I hope.' The worthy officer, jumping upon a horse given him by Aramis, departed in the direction of the sound of cannon, which, by surging the crowd into the fort, had interrupted the conversation of the two friends with their prisoner. Aramis watched the departure, and when left alone with Porthos, "'Well, do you comprehend?' said he. "'Ma foi, no! Did not Biscarat inconvenience you here?' "'No, he is a brave fellow.' "'Yes, but the grotto of Lochmaria. Is it necessary all the world should know it?' "'Ah, that is true, that is true, I comprehend. We are going to escape by the cavern.' "'If you please,' cried Aramis gaily, "'forward, friend Porthos, our boat awaits us. King Louis has not caught us, yet.'" End of chapter Chapter forty seven of the Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter forty seven The Grotto of Lochmaria. The cavern of Lochmaria was sufficiently distant from the mole to render it necessary for our friends to husband their strength in order to reach it. Besides, night was advancing. Midnight had struck at the fort. Porthos and Aramis were loaded with money and arms. They walked then across the heath, which stretched between the mole and the cavern, listening to every noise, in order better to avoid an ambush. From time to time, on the road which they had carefully left on their left, passed fugitives coming from the interior, at the news of the landing of the royal troops. Aramis and Porthos, concealed behind some projecting mass of rock, collected the words that escaped from the poor people, who fled, trembling, carrying with them their most valuable effects, and tried, whilst listening to their complaints, to gather something from them for their own interest. At length, after a rapid race, frequently interrupted by prudent stoppages, they reached the deep grottoes, in which the prophetic Bishop of Vannes had taken care to have secreted a bark capable of keeping the sea at this fine season. "'My good friend,' said Porthos, panting vigorously, "'we have arrived, it seems. But I thought you spoke of three men, three servants, who were to accompany us. I don't see them. Where are they?' "'Why should you see them, Porthos?' replied Aramis. "'They are certainly waiting for us in the cavern, and, no doubt, are resting, having accomplished their rough and difficult task.' 
Aramis stopped Porthos, who was preparing to enter the cavern. "'Will you allow me, my friend?' said he to the giant, to pass in first. I know the signal I have given to these men, who, not hearing it, would be very likely to fire upon you or slash away with their knives in the dark. "'Go on, then, Aramis, go on. Go first. You impersonate wisdom and foresight. Go. Ah, there is that fatigue again, of which I spoke to you. It has just seized me afresh.' Aramis left Porthos sitting at the entrance of the grotto, and bowing his head, he penetrated into the interior of the cavern, imitating the cry of the owl. A little plaintive cooing, a scarcely distinct echo, replied from the depths of the cave. Aramis pursued his way cautiously, and soon was stopped by the same kind of cry as he had first uttered, within ten paces of him. "'Are you there, Yves?' said the bishop. "'Yes, Monseigneur. Goen is here likewise. His son accompanies us.' "'That is well. Are all things ready?' "'Yes, Monseigneur.' "'Go to the entrance of the grottoes, my good Eve, and you will there find the Seigneur de Pierrefonds, who is resting after the fatigue of our journey. And if he should happen not to be able to walk, lift him up and bring him hither to me.' The three men obeyed but the recommendation given to his servants was superfluous. Porthos, refreshed, had already commenced the descent, and his heavy step resounded amongst the cavities, formed and supported by columns of porphyry and granite. As soon as the seigneur de Brasseur had rejoined the bishop, the Bretons lighted a lantern with which they were furnished, and Porthos assured his friend that he felt as strong again as ever. "'Let us inspect the boat.' said Aramis, and satisfy ourselves at once what it will hold. "'Do not go too near with the light,' said the patron, Eve, "'for as you desired me, Monseigneur, I have placed under the bench of the poop, in the coffer you know of, the barrel of powder, and the musket charges that you sent me from the fort.' "'Very well,' said Aramis, and taking the lantern himself, he examined minutely all parts of the canoe with the precautions of a man who is neither timid nor ignorant in the face of danger. The canoe was long, light, drawing little water, thin of keel, in short, one of those that have always been so aptly built at Belle-Isle, a little high in its sides, solid upon the water, very manageable, furnished with planks which, in uncertain weather, formed a sort of deck over which the waves might glide, so as to protect the rowers. In two well-closed coffers, placed beneath the benches of the prow and the poop, Aramis found bread, biscuit, dried fruits, a quarter of bacon, a good provision of water in leathern bottles, the whole forming rations sufficient for people who did not mean to quit the coast, and would be able to revictual if necessity commanded. The arms, eight muskets, and as many horse-pistols, were in good condition, and all loaded. There were additional oars, in case of accident, and that little sail called trinquet, which assists the speed of the canoe at the same time the boatmen row, and is so useful when the breeze is slack. When Aramis had seen to all these things, and appeared satisfied with the results of his inspection, "'Let us consult Porthos,' said he. 
to know if we must endeavour to get the boat out by the unknown extremity of the grotto, following the descent and the shade of the cavern, or whether it be better, in the open air, to make it slide upon its rollers through the bushes, levelling the road of the little beach, which is but twenty feet high, and gives at high tide three or four fathoms of good water upon a sound bottom. "'It must be as you please, Monseigneur,' replied the skipper Eve, respectfully. "'But I don't believe that by the slope of the cavern, and in the dark in which we shall be obliged to manoeuvre our boat, the road will be so convenient as the open air. I know the beach well, and can certify that it is as smooth as a grass-plot in a garden. The interior of the grotto, on the contrary, is rough, without reckoning, Monseigneur, that at its extremity we shall come to the trench which leads into the sea, and perhaps the canoe will not pass down it. "'I have made my calculation,' said the bishop, "'and I am certain it will pass.' "'So be it. I wish it may, Monseigneur,' continued Eve. "'But your highness knows very well that to make it reach the extremity of the trench there is an enormous stone to be lifted, that under which the fox always passes, and which closes the trench like a door.' "'It can be raised,' said Porthos. <laughs> "'That is nothing.' "'Oh, I know that Monseigneur has the strength of ten men,' replied Eve. "'But that is giving him a great deal of trouble.' "'I think the skipper may be right,' said Aramis. "'Let us try the open-air passage.' "'The more so, Monseigneur,' continued the fisherman, "'that we should not be able to embark before day. "'It will require so much labour, and that as soon as daylight appears—' A good vedette placed outside the grotto would be necessary, indispensable even, to watch the manoeuvres of the lighters or cruisers that are on the lookout for us. Yes, yes, Eve, your reasons are good. We will go by the beach. And the three robust Bretons went to the boat, and were beginning to place their rollers underneath it to put it in motion, when the distant barking of dogs was heard, proceeding from the interior of the island. Aramis darted out of the grotto, followed by Porthos. Dawn just tinted with purple and white the waves and plain, through the dim light, melancholy fir-trees waved their tender branches over the pebbles, and long flights of crows were skimming with their black wings the shimmering fields of buckwheat. In a quarter of an hour it would be clear daylight. The wakened birds announced it to all nature. The barkings which had been heard— which had stopped the three fishermen engaged in moving the boat, and had brought Aramis and Porthos out of the cavern, now seemed to come from a deep gorge within about a league of the grotto. "'It is a pack of hounds,' said Porthos. "'The dogs are on a scent.' "'Who can be hunting at such a moment as this?' said Aramis. "'And this way particularly,' continued Porthos, "'where they might expect the army of the royalists.' The noise comes nearer. Yes, you are right, Porthos. The dogs are on a scent. But Eve, cried Aramis, come here, come here. Eve ran toward him, letting fall the cylinder which he was about to place under the boat when the bishop's call interrupted him. What is the meaning of this hunt, skipper? said Porthos. Eh? Monseigneur, I cannot understand it. 
replied the Breton. It is not at such a moment that the Seigneur de Lacmaria would hunt. No, and yet the dogs. Unless they have escaped from the kennel. No, said Gawen, they are not the Seigneur de Lacmaria's hounds. In common prudence, said Aramis, let us go back into the grotto. The voices evidently draw nearer. We shall soon know what we have to trust to. They re-entered, but had scarcely proceeded a hundred steps in the darkness, when a noise like the hoarse sigh of a creature in distress resounded through the cavern, and breathless, rapid, terrified, a fox passed like a flash of lightning before the fugitives, leaped over the boat and disappeared, leaving behind its sour scent, which was perceptible for several seconds under the low vaults of the cave. "'The fox!' cried the Bretons, with a glad surprise of born hunters. "'A cursed mischance!' cried the bishop. "'Our retreat is discovered.' "'How so?' said Porthos. "'Are you afraid of a fox?' "'Eh? My friend, what do you mean by that? Why do you specify the fox? It is not the fox alone. Pardieu! But don't you know, Porthos, that after the foxes come hounds, and after hounds men? Porthos hung his head. As though to confirm the words of Aramis, they heard the yelping pack approach with frightful swiftness upon the trail. Six foxhounds burst at once upon the little heath, with mingling yelps of triumph. "'There are the dogs, plain enough,' said Aramis, posted on the lookout behind a chink in the rocks. "'Now, who are the huntsmen?' If it is the Seigneur de Lacmarias, replied the sailor, he will leave the dogs to hunt the grotto, for he knows them, and will not enter in himself, being quite sure that the fox will come out the other side. It is there he will wait for him. It is not the Seigneur de Lacmaria who is hunting, replied Aramis, turning pale in spite of his efforts to maintain a placid countenance. Who is it, then? said Porthos. Look. Porthos applied his eye to the slit, and saw at the summit of a hillock a dozen horsemen urging on their horses in the track of the dogs, shouting, Tayo! Tayo! The guards, said he. Yes, my friend, the king's guards. The king's guards? Do you say, monseigneur? cried the Bretons, growing pale in turn, with Biscarat at their head. "'Mounted upon my grey horse,' continued Aramis. The hounds at the same moment rushed into the grotto like an avalanche, and the depths of the cavern were filled with their deafening cries. "'Ah, the devil!' said Aramis, resuming all his coolness at the sight of this certain, inevitable danger. "'I am perfectly satisfied we are lost, but we have at least one chance left.' If the guards who follow their hounds happen to discover there is an issue to the grotto, there is no help for us, for on entering they must see both ourselves and our boat. The dogs must not go out of the cavern. Their masters must not enter. "'That is clear,' said Porthos. "'You understand,' added Aramis, with a rapid precision of command. There are six dogs that will be forced to stop at the great stone under which the fox has glided, but at the too narrow opening of which they must be themselves stopped and killed. The Bretons sprang forward, knife in hand, 
In a few minutes there was a lamentable concert of angry barks and mortal howls, and then silence. "'That's well,' said Aramis coolly. "'Now for the masters.' "'What is to be done with them?' said Porthos. "'Wait their arrival, conceal ourselves, and kill them.' "'Kill them!' replied Porthos. "'There are sixteen, said Aramis, at least at present.' "'And well armed,' added Porthos, with a smile of consolation. "'It will last about ten minutes,' said Aramis. "'To work!' and with a resolute air he took up a musket and placed a hunting-knife between his teeth. "'Yves, Gawen, and his son,' continued Aramis, "'will pass the muskets to us. You, Porthos, will fire when they are close. We shall have brought down, at the lowest computation, eight, before the others are aware of anything. That is certain. Then all, there are five of us, will dispatch the other eight, knife in hand.' "'And poor Biscarat?' said Porthos. Aramis reflected a moment. "'Biscarat first, replied he, coolly. "'He knows us.'" End of chapter Chapter 48 of The Man in the Iron Mask this LibriVox recording is in the public domain, and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexander Dumas Chapter 48 The Grotto In spite of the sort of divination which was the remarkable side of the character of Aramis, the event, subject to the risks of things over which uncertainty presides, did not fall out exactly as the bishop of Vannes had foreseen. Biscarat, better mounted than his companions, arrived first at the opening of the grotto, and comprehended that fox and hounds were one and all engulfed in it. Only, struck by that superstitious terror which every dark and subterraneous way naturally impresses upon the mind of man, he stopped at the outside of the grotto, and waited till his companions should have assembled round him, "'Well,' asked the young men, coming up out of breath, and unable to understand the meaning of this inaction, "'Well, I cannot hear the dogs. They and the fox must all be lost in this infernal cavern.' "'They were too close up,' said one of the guards, "'to have lost scent all at once. Besides, we should hear them from one side or another. They must, as Biscarat say, be in this grotto.' "'But then?' said one of the young men. "'Why don't they give tongue?' "'It is strange,' muttered another. "'Well, but,' said a fourth, "'let us go into this grotto. Does it happen to be forbidden we should enter it?' "'No,' replied Biscarat. "'Only, as it looks as dark as a wolf's mouth, we might break our necks in it.' "'Witness the dogs,' said a guard, "'who seem to have broken theirs.' "'What the devil can have become of them?' asked the young men in chorus, and every master called his dog by his name, whistled to him in his favourite mode, without a single one replying to either call or whistle. "'It is perhaps an enchanted grotto,' said Biscarat. "'Let us see.' 
and jumping from his horse he made a step into the grotto. "'Stop! Stop! I will accompany you!' said one of the guards, on seeing Biscarat disappear in the shades of the cavern's mouth. "'No,' replied Biscarat. "'There must be something extraordinary in the place. Don't let us risk ourselves all at once. If in ten minutes you do not hear of me, you can come in, but not all at once.' "'Be it so,' said the young man, who, besides, did not imagine that Biscarat ran much risk in the enterprise. "'We will wait for you.' and without dismounting from their horses they formed a circle round the grotto. Biscarat entered then alone, and advanced through the darkness till he came in contact with the muzzle of Porthos's musket. The resistance which his chest met with astonished him. He naturally raised his hand and laid hold of the icy barrel. At the same instant Eve lifted a knife against the young man, who was about to fall upon him with all the force of a Breton's arm when the iron wrist of Porthos stopped it half-way. Then, like low muttering thunder, his voice growled in the darkness, "'I will not have him kill!' Biscarat found himself between a protection and a threat, the one almost as terrible as the other. However brave the young man might be, he could not prevent a cry escaping him, which Aramis immediately suppressed by placing a handkerchief over his mouth. "'Monsieur de Piscarat,' said he, in a low voice, "'we mean you no harm, and you must know that if you have recognized us, but at the first word, the first groan, the first whisper, we shall be forced to kill you as we have killed your dogs.' "'Yes, I recognize you, gentlemen,' said the officer, in a low voice. "'But why are you here? What are you doing here? Unfortunate man, I thought you were in the fort.' "'And you, monsieur, you were to obtain conditions for us, I think.' "'I did all I was able, monsieur, but—' "'But what?' "'But there are positive orders.' "'To kill us?' Biscarat made no reply. It would have cost him too much to speak of the cord to gentlemen. Aramis understood the silence of the prisoner. "'Monsieur Biscarat,' said he, you would be already dead if we had not regard for your youth and our ancient association with your father. But you may yet escape from the place by swearing that you will not tell your companions what you have seen. I will not only swear that I will not speak of it, said Biscarat, but I still further swear that I will do everything in the world to prevent my companions from setting foot in the grotto. Biscarat! Biscarat! cried several voices from the outside, coming like a whirlwind into the cave. "'Reply,' said Aramis. "'Here I am!' cried Biscarat. "'Now be gone. We depend on your loyalty.' And he left his hold of the young man, who hastily returned towards the light. "'Biscarat! Biscarat!' cried the voices, still nearer and the shadows of several human forms projected into the interior of the grotto. Biscarat rushed to meet his friends in order to stop them, and met them just as they were adventuring into the cave. Aramis and Porthos listened with the intense attention of men whose life depends upon a breath of air. "'Oh, oh!' exclaimed one of the guards as he came to the light. "'How pale you are!' "'Pale!' cried another. You ought to say corpse-colour. 
I, said the young man, endeavouring to collect his faculties. In the name of heaven, what has happened? exclaimed all the voices. You have not a drop of blood in your veins, my poor friend, said one of them, laughing. Messieurs, it is nothing. Messieurs, it is serious, said another. He is going to faint. Does any one of you happen to have any salts? And they all laughed. This hail of jests fell round Biscarat's ears like musket-balls in a melee. He recovered himself amidst a deluge of interrogations. "'What do you suppose I have seen?' asked he. "'I was too hot when I entered the grotto, and I have been struck with a chill. That is all.' "'But the dogs! The dogs! Have you seen them again? Did you see anything of them? Do you know anything about them?' I suppose they have got out some other way. Messieurs, said one of the young men, there is in that which is going on, in the paleness and silence of our friend, a mystery which Biscarat will not or cannot reveal. Only, and this is certain, Biscarat has seen something in the grotto. Well, for my part, I am very curious to see what it is, even if it is the devil." "'To the grotto, monsieur, to the grotto!' "'To the grotto!' repeated all the voices, and the echo of the cavern carried like a menace to Porthos and Aramis. "'To the grotto! To the grotto!' Biscarat threw himself before his companions. "'Monsieur! Monsieur!' cried he. "'In the name of heaven! Do not go in!' "'Why, what is there so terrific in the cavern?' asked several at once. Come, speak, Biscarat. Decidedly, it is the devil he has seen, repeated he who had before advanced that hypothesis. Well, said another, if he has seen him, he need not be selfish. He may as well let us have a look at him in turn. Monsieur, monsieur, I beseech you, urged Biscarat. Nonsense! Let us pass. Monsieur, I implore you not to enter. Why, you went in yourself? Then one of the officers, who, of a riper age than the others, had till this time remained behind, and had said nothing, advanced. Messieurs, said he, with a calmness which contrasted with the animation of the young men, there is in there some person, or something, that is not the devil, but which, whatever it may be, has had sufficient power to silence our dogs. We must discover who this someone is, or what this something is. Biscarat made a last effort to stop his friends, but it was useless. In vain he threw himself before the rashest, in vain he clung to the rocks to bar the passage. The crowd of young men rushed into the cave, in the steps of the officer who had spoken last, but who had sprung in first, sword in hand, to face the unknown danger. Biscarat repulsed by his friends, unable to accompany them, without passing in the eyes of Porthos and Aramis for a traitor and a perjurer, with painfully attentive ear and unconsciously supplicating hands, leaned against the rough side of a rock which he thought must be exposed to the fire of the musketeers. As to the guards, they penetrated further and further, with exclamations that grew fainter as they advanced. All at once, 
a discharge of musketry, growling like thunder, exploded in the entrails of the vault. Two or three balls were flattened against the rock on which Biscarat was leaning. At the same instant, cries, shrieks, imprecations burst forth, and the little troop of gentlemen reappeared, some pale, some bleeding, all enveloped in a cloud of smoke, which the outer air seemed to suck from the depths of the cavern. "'Biscarat! Biscarat!' cried the fugitives. "'You knew there was an ambuscade in that cavern, and you did not warn us. Biscarat, you are the cause that four of us are murdered men. Woe be to you, Biscarat!' "'You are the cause of my being wounded unto death,' said one of the young men, letting a gush of scarlet life-blood vomit in his palm, and spattering into Biscarat's livid face. "'My blood be on your head!' and he rolled in agony at the feet of the young man. "'But at least tell us who is there!' cried several furious voices. Biscarat remained silent. "'Tell us or die!' cried the wounded man, raising himself upon one knee, and lifting towards his companion an arm bearing a useless sword. Biscarat rushed towards him, opening his breast for the blow but the wounded man fell back not to rise again, uttering a groan which was his last. Biscarat, with hair on end, haggard eyes, and bewildered head, advanced towards the interior of the cavern, saying, "'You are right. Death to me, who have allowed my comrades to be assassinated. I am a worthless wretch.' And throwing away his sword, for he wished to die without defending himself, he rushed head-foremost into the cavern. The others followed him. The eleven who remained out of sixteen imitated his example, but they did not go further than the first. A second discharge laid five upon the icy sand, and as it was impossible to see whence this murderous thunder issued, the others fell back with a terror that can be better imagined than described. But far from flying, as the others had done, Biscarat remained safe and sound, seated on a fragment of rock, and waited. There were only six gentlemen left. "'Seriously,' said one of the survivors, "'is it the devil?' "'Ma foi, it is much worse,' said another. "'Ask Biscarat, he knows.' "'Where is Biscarat?' The young men looked round them and saw that Biscarat did not answer. "'He is dead.' said two or three voices. "'Oh, no,' replied another. "'I saw him through the smoke, sitting quietly on a rock. He is in the cavern. He is waiting for us. He must know who are there.' "'And how should he know them? He was taken prisoner by the rebels.' "'That is true. Well, let us call him and learn from him whom we have to deal with.' And all voices shouted, "'Biscarat! Biscarat!' But Biscarat did not answer. "'Good,' said the officer, who had shown so much coolness in the affair. "'We have no longer any need of him. Here are reinforcements coming.' In fact, a company of guards, left in the rear by their officers, whom the ardour of the chase had carried away, from seventy-five to eighty men, arrived in good order, led by their captain and the first lieutenant. The five officers hastened to meet their soldiers, and, in language the eloquence of which may be easily imagined, they related the adventure, and asked for aid. 
the captain interrupted them. "'Where are your companions?' demanded he. "'Dead!' "'But there were sixteen of you.' Ten are dead. Biscarat's in the cavern, and we are five. "'Biscarat is a prisoner?' "'Probably.' "'No, for here he is. Look!' In fact, Biscarat appeared at the opening of the grotto. "'He is making a sign to come on,' said the officer. "'Come on!' "'Come on!' cried all the troop, and they advanced to meet Biscarat. "'Monsieur,' said the captain, addressing Biscarat, "'I am assured that you know who the men are in that grotto, and who make such a desperate defence. In the king's name I command you to declare what you know.' "'Captain,' said Biscarat, "'you have no need to command me. My word has been restored to me this very instant, and I came in the name of these men. "'To tell me who they are? "'To tell you they are determined to defend themselves to the death, unless you grant them satisfactory terms. "'How many are there of them, then?' "'There are two, said Biscarat. "'There are two. "'and want to impose conditions upon us? "'There are two, and they have already killed ten of our men. "'What sort of people are they? "'Giants? "'Worse than that. "'Do you remember the history of the Bastion Saint-Gervais, Captain?' "'Yes, where four musketeers held out against an army.' "'Well, these are two of those same musketeers.' and their names. At that period they were called Porthos and Aramis. Now they are styled Monsieur d'Herblay and Monsieur du Vallon. And what interest have they in all this? It is they who were holding Belle-Isle for Monsieur Fouquet. A murmur ran through the ranks of the soldiers on hearing the two words, Porthos and Aramis. The musketeers! The musketeers! repeated they. And among all these brave men, the idea that they were going to have a struggle against two of the oldest glories of the French army made a shiver, half enthusiasm, two-thirds terror, run through them. In fact, those four names, D'Artagnan, Athos, Porthos, and Aramis, were venerated among all who wore a sword, as, in antiquity, the names of Hercules, Theseus, Castor, and Pollux were venerated. Two men, and they have killed ten in two discharges. It is impossible, Monsieur Biscarat. Eh, Captain, replied the latter, I do not tell you that they have not with them two or three men, as the musketeers of the Bastion Saint-Gervais had two or three lackeys. But believe me, Captain, I have seen these men. I have been taken prisoner by them. I know they themselves alone are all sufficient to destroy an army. "'That we shall see,' said the captain, "'and that in a moment, too. Gentlemen, attention!' At this reply no one stirred, and all prepared to obey. Biscarat alone risked a last attempt. "'Monsieur,' said he in a low voice, "'be persuaded by me. Let us pass on our way.' Those two men, those two lions you are going to attack, will defend themselves to the death. They have already killed ten of our men. They will kill double the number, 
and end by killing themselves rather than surrender. What shall we gain by fighting them?' "'We shall gain the consciousness, monsieur, of not having allowed eighty of the king's guards to retire before two rebels. If I listen to your advice, monsieur, I should be a dishonoured man, and by dishonouring myself I should dishonour the army. Forward, my men!' and he marched first as far as the opening of the grotto. There he halted. The object of this halt was to give Biscarat and his companions time to describe to him the interior of the grotto. Then, when he believed he had a sufficient acquaintance with the place, he divided his company into three bodies, which were to enter successively, keeping up a sustained fire in all directions. No doubt, in this attack they would lose five more, perhaps ten, but certainly they must end by taking the rebels, since there was no issue, and at any rate two men could not kill eighty. "'Captain,' said Biscarat, "'I beg to be allowed to march at the head of the first platoon.' "'So be it,' replied the captain. "'You have all the honour. I make you a present of it.' "'Thanks,' replied the young man, with all the firmness of his race." "'Take your sword, then.' "'I shall go as I am, Captain,' said Biscarat. "'For I do not go to kill, I go to be killed.' And placing himself at the head of the first platoon, with head uncovered and arms crossed, "'March, gentlemen,' said he. End of chapter Chapter forty nine of The Man in the Iron Mask. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain and is read by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. The Man in the Iron Mask by Alexandre Dumas. Chapter forty nine An Homeric Song. It is time to pass to the other camp and to describe at once the combatants and the field of battle. Aramis and Porthos had gone to the grotto of Lachmaria with the expectation of finding there their canoe, ready-armed, as well as the three Bretons, their assistants, and they at first hoped to make the bark pass through the little issue of the cavern, concealing in that fashion both their labours and their flight. The arrival of the fox and dogs obliged them to remain concealed. The grotto extended the space of about a hundred toises, to that little slope dominating a creek formerly a temple of the Celtic divinities, when Belle-Isle was still called Calanese. This grotto had beheld more than one human sacrifice accomplished in its mystic depths. The first entrance to the cavern was by a moderate descent, above which distorted rocks formed a weird arcade. The interior, very uneven and dangerous from the inequalities of the vault, was subdivided into several compartments, which communicated with each other by means of rough and jagged steps, fixed right and left, in uncouth natural pillars. At the third compartment the vault was so low, the passage so narrow, that the bark would scarcely have passed without touching the side. Nevertheless, in moments of despair, wood softens, and stone grows flexible beneath the human will. Such was the thought of Aramis, when, after having fought the fight, he decided upon flight, a flight most dangerous, since all the assailants were not dead, 
and that, admitting the possibility of putting the bark to sea, they would have to fly an open day, before the conquered, so interested on recognizing their small number, in pursuing their conquerors. When the two discharges had killed ten men, Aramis, familiar with the windings of the cavern, went to reconnoitre them one by one, and counted them, for the smoke prevented seeing outside, and he immediately commanded that the canoe should be rolled as far as the great stone, the closure of the liberating issue. Porthos collected all his strength, took the canoe in his arms, and raised it up, whilst the Bretons made it run rapidly along the rollers. They had descended into the third compartment. They had arrived at the stone which walled the outlet. Porthos seized this gigantic stone at its base, applied his robust shoulder, and gave a heave which made the wall crack. A cloud of dust fell from the vault, with the ashes of ten thousand generations of sea-birds, whose nests stuck like cement to the rock. At the third shock, the stone gave way, and oscillated for a minute. Porthos, placing his back against the neighbouring rock, made an arch with his foot, which drove the block out of the calcareous masses which served for hinges and cramps. The stone fell, and daylight was visible, brilliant, radiant, flooding the cavern through the opening, and the blue sea appeared to the delighted Bretons. They began to lift the bark over the barricade. Twenty more toises, and it would glide into the ocean. It was during this time that the company arrived, was drawn up by the captain, and disposed for either an escalade or an assault. Aramis watched over everything, to favour the labours of his friends. He saw the reinforcements, counted the men, and convinced himself at a single glance of the insurmountable peril to which fresh combat would expose them. To escape by sea, at the moment the cavern was about to be invaded, was impossible. In fact, the daylight which had just been admitted to the last compartments had exposed to the soldiers the bark being rolled towards the sea, the two rebels within musket-shot, and one of their discharges would riddle the boat if it did not kill the navigators. Besides, allowing everything, if the bark escaped with the men on board of it, how could the alarm be suppressed? How could notice to the royal lighters be prevented? What could hinder the poor canoe, followed by sea and watched from the shore, from succumbing before the end of the day? Aramis, digging his hands into his grey hair with rage, invoked the assistance of God and the assistance of the demons. Calling to Porthos, who was doing more work than all the rollers, whether of flesh or wood, "'My friend,' said he, "'our adversaries have just received a reinforcement.' "'Ah! ah!' said Porthos quietly. "'What is to be done, then?' "'To recommence the combat,' said Aramis, "'is hazardous.' "'Yes,' said Porthos, "'for it is difficult to suppose that out of two one should not be killed, and certainly if one of us was killed, the other would get himself killed also.' Porthos spoke these words with that heroic nature which, with him, grew grander with necessity." Aramis felt it like a spur to his heart. "'We shall neither of us be killed if you do what I tell you, friend Porthos.' "'Tell me what?' "'These people are coming down into the grotto.' "'Yes?' "'We could kill about fifteen of them, but no more.' "'How many are there in all?' 
asked Porthos. They have received a reinforcement of seventy-five men. Seventy-five and five, eighty. Ah, sighed Porthos. If they fire all at once, they will riddle us with balls. Certainly they will. Without reckoning, added Aramis, that the detonation might occasion a collapse of the cavern. Ay, said Porthos, a piece of falling rock just now grazed my shoulder. You see, then. Oh, it is nothing. We must determine upon something quickly. Our Bretons are going to continue to roll the canoe towards the sea. Very well. We, too, will keep the powder, the balls, and the muskets here. "'But only two, my dear Aramis. We shall never fire three shots together,' said Porthos, innocently. "'The defence by musketry is a bad one.' "'Find a better, then.' "'I have found one,' said the giant eagerly. "'I will place myself in ambuscade behind the pillar with this iron bar, an invisible, unattackable. If they come in floods, I can let my bar fall upon their skulls thirty times in a minute. Hein!' What do you think of the project? <laughs> you smile. Excellent, dear friend, perfect. I approve it greatly. Only you will frighten them, and half of them will remain outside to take us by famine. What we want, my good friend, is the entire destruction of the troop. A single survivor encompasses our ruin. You are right, my friend, but how can we attract them, pray? By not stirring, my good Porthos. Well, we won't stir, then. But when they are all together... Then leave it to me. I have an idea. If it is so, and your idea proves a good one, and your idea is most likely to be good, I am satisfied. To your ambuscade, Porthos, and count how many enter. But you, what will you do? Don't trouble yourself about me. I have a task to perform. I think I hear shouts. It is they. To your post. Keep within reach of my voice and hand. Porthos took refuge in the second compartment, which was in darkness, absolutely black. Aramis glided into the third. The giant held in his hand an iron bar of about fifty pounds weight. Porthos handled this lever, which had been used in rolling the bark, with marvellous facility. During this time, the Bretons had pushed the bark to the beach. In the further and lighter compartment, Aramis, stooping and concealed, was busy with some mysterious manoeuvre. A command was given in a loud voice. It was the last order of the Captain Commandant. Twenty-five men jumped from the upper rocks into the first compartment of the grotto, and having taken their ground, began to fire. The echoes shrieked and barked. The hissing balls seemed actually to rarefy the air, and then opaque smoke filled the vault. "'To the left! To the left!' cried Biscarat, who in his first assault had seen the passage to the second chamber, and who, animated by the smell of powder, wished to guide his soldiers in that direction. The troop, accordingly, precipitated themselves to the left, the passage gradually growing narrower. Biscarat, with his hands stretched forward, devoted to death, marched in advance of the muskets. "'Come on! Come on!' exclaimed he. "'I see daylight!' "'Strike, Porthos!' came the sepulchral voice of Aramis. 
Porthos breathed a heavy sigh, but he obeyed. The iron bar fell full and direct upon the head of Biscarat, who was dead before he had ended his cry. Then the formidable lever rose ten times in ten seconds, and made ten corpses. The soldiers could see nothing. They heard sighs and groans. They stumbled over dead bodies. But as they had no conception of the cause of all this, they came forward, jostling each other. The implacable bar, still falling, annihilated the first platoon, without a single sound to warn the second, which was quietly advancing. Only, commanded by the captain, the men had stripped a fir growing on the shore, and with its resinous branches twisted together, the captain had made a flambeau. On arriving at the compartment where Porthos, like the exterminating angel, had destroyed all he touched, the first rank drew back in terror. No firing had replied to that of the guards, and yet their way was stopped by a heap of dead bodies. They literally walked in blood. Porthos was still behind his pillar. The captain, illumining with trembling pine-torch this frightful carnage, of which he in vain sought the cause, drew back towards the pillar behind which Porthos was concealed. Then a gigantic hand issued from the shade and fastened on the throat of the captain, who uttered a stifled rattle, his stretched-out arms beating the air. The torch fell and was extinguished in blood. A second after, the corpse of the captain dropped close to the extinguished torch, and added another body to the heap of dead, which blocked up the passage. All this was effected as mysteriously as though by magic. At hearing the rattling in the throat of the captain, the soldiers who accompanied him had turned round, caught a glimpse of his extended arms, his eyes starting from their sockets, and then the torch fell, and they were left in darkness. From an unreflective, instinctive, mechanical feeling, the lieutenant cried, "'Fire!' Immediately a volley of musketry flamed, thundered, roared in the cavern, bringing down enormous fragments from the vaults. The cavern was lighted for an instant by this discharge, and then immediately returned to pitchy darkness, rendered thicker by the smoke. To this succeeded a profound silence, broken only by the steps of the third brigade, now entering the cavern. End of chapter At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.